what's going on and welcome to the first ever episode of anybody and everybody i'm your host herm and i am so excited to be here today we have an unreal interview for you guys and it's just the culmination of me telling everybody about this project getting it underway getting some interviews knocked out and coming to you live here day one on january 28th is something that it it really means a lot to me it's something that I've put more work into than anything else I've probably ever done in my life, which is crazy because I've done a lot of big things, but this has been a massive undertaking and I would not be here without the support of you guys. So first things first, I want to thank everyone who is tuning in right now. You guys rock. If you want to come on the show, shoot me a DM. I would love to have you. I think that there's so many great people that both follow me on Twitter and Instagram who don't necessarily have the platform to tell their story on, but I would love to be that opportunity for you. So first things first, feel free to message me. Come on the show. I would love that. Secondly, if you haven't already, go listen to the trailer to this show just so that you're informed about what it's about. It's about getting people with a small following the platform to tell their stories on. And that's not limiting anybody. I mean, I don't care if you have 10 followers or you have 10 million followers. We're going to get your interview done. We're going to get it up and we're going to let people listen to what you have to say from your opinion. And hey, so what if it's controversial? That's what people love. So before we get started here, and this is the most that you will ever hear me talk before an interview, but I think that it's important to get a few things out of the way. First things first, this podcast is not sponsored by anybody. That means that it's not affiliated with my personal job at Signature Lacrosse, but it's also not sponsored by any lacrosse company, brand, or anyone I might affiliate with at any point throughout my career. Right now we have no sponsors, and I don't think we'll ever have a lacrosse sponsor because as much as I love the lacrosse community and everything that I've been able to do in it over the last year, I think that this podcast is going to express so many more stories outside of lacrosse that it would be both unfair to listeners who want to hear those stories to have lacrosse ad reads, but for the lacrosse brands who aren't drawing in just lacrosse fans space. So there's going to be a lot of amazing lacrosse interviews on the show. It's true. I already have a lot of them booked up. I even have a few of them done, but because it's not lacrosse based strictly, I'm going to kind of veer away from just having lacrosse sponsors. That being said, this, this show will need sponsors eventually, and I will sign deals to get sponsors for this. So I'm super excited for that point in my life to cross, but they're not going to be lacrosse related. This has nothing to do with anything I do in the lacrosse community. It just strictly has some lacrosse people getting interviewed by me on this show. So A little bit about my life. I am a content creator first. I love making videos. I love putting out podcasts. I love writing blogs. Anything to get both my voice out there and help express someone else's is kind of what I live for. And I hope to do it full time as a career because there's no better feeling than putting a project together and just getting it out for people to enjoy and consume. Next, you guys just heard me go on a little bit of a rant about lacrosse. Obviously, I've made a pretty big mark on the lacrosse community over the last year. I've had an amazing following of people who enjoy my vlogs or anything that I do at the various lacrosse events that I go to. And I think that's such a big part of my life that's going to be in many of these interviews. I'm going to bring up lacrosse stories, have lacrosse guests. However, it's not the main stay of this podcast, but lacrosse is a huge part of my life and the lacrosse media industry in particular. So, It's going to be a big part of the show, it's just not necessarily going to be the focal point. Beyond that, I just love 
coming on here and doing this type of stuff. I love being present and I love being there for you guys and with you guys. So, I mean, a shameless plug here, if you aren't already, go follow me on Twitter at Herm underscore SL because I want to hear from you guys. I want to hear your stories. I want to hear what you think about on a daily basis. And I think that it's just as important for me to take in what you guys think about the show as what I feel about it. So feel free to let me know what you think. Many of you guys know me formally as one of the co-hosts of Outside the Box podcast, which was a whole year of my life. And I almost did 100 episodes with Kyle. So I just kind of want to stop here for a moment and thank Kyle. Kyle did more for my podcasting career and my media presence than anybody else in this world. He was the original person to help me get on Twitter. He was the first person to help me really get a voice out. He really is the first person who was like, dude, you should do this vlogging thing more often. It's great. Do it for me and do it with us. And then he gave me the opportunity to host Outside the Box. And that was the first time I really got to come onto this scene as a podcaster, talk to you guys, share my opinions in front of a microphone, and I would not be here without him. So, Kyle, if you're listening, thank you so much, man. It really means the world to me, and I wish Underground Sports Philadelphia and Outside the Box nothing but the most success. You and Dom are crushing it, so I love to listen every week, and uh, I just wanted to thank you for that. But without further ado, let's talk about our guest today. His name is Mike Coiro. He is not just my best friend, but he is one of the most intelligent human beings I've ever met in my life. This kid is brilliant. You're going to hear about it throughout the interview. He grew up as a prodigy music star. I mean, he was just doing things that nobody else could do, and it's one of those things that you're kind of born with. He has a work ethic unlike anyone I've ever met in my life, and I could not be more excited to launch this show with anybody else. So you're going to hear me repeat this again at the end of the show because I was discussing it with him. However, I think that when you get into a huge project like this, something where thousands of people are going to be able to take in what you're saying or listening to you and listening to your opinion... You want to go into that with someone you're comfortable with. Not that I didn't want to start off the show with a guest that I didn't know previously, but I think that it was important for me to come into it with a certain understanding of my guest, someone that I know I can communicate with beyond a verbal level, but on an almost spiritual level where I know what he's going to say, when he's going to say it, and kind of where he's going with stories. It's kind of like music that which he gets into and how you have to be able to read the other people of a band or orchestra. That's exactly what this was going into. So the familiarity that I have with Mike was crucial for me to get this show off the ground. That being said, we've already got about seven interviews in the books and they are all absolutely amazing. But without further ado, this is the longest I'm ever going to speak before an interview. Here he is, Mike Coiro. So many people, for whatever reason, think my celebrity lookalike is David Dobrik. And oh, David yeah. David Dobrik recently posted these pictures of him when he was, you know, I guess around this time. And he had the same haircut? Grade. He had the exact same haircut, and he looks pretty, pretty similar to me. Um, and this was because he was actually hanging out with Justin Bieber. And, of course, they both changed their hairstyle since then. Yeah, I mean, you go through these ebbs and flows of hairstyles. But are, are you going to be giving a Tesla away anytime soon? No, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. I would never scam that many people into thinking that I'm actually going to benefit their lives in such a way like Didn't that. he actually give out the Tesla? Yeah, but I think it was like months before the competition actually happened or something. Like, Really? I don't, I don't know if it was... Now, would you say like a lot of those giveaways are just scams? At yeah, the end remember of the, the day? one about the bathing suit? Oh, that's right, the red bathing yeah, suit. Yeah, that's... you could see it in your mind. The girl sitting against the pool with the red bathing suit on, and yeah. girls 
would just repost it on their stories because the, it was like a giveaway. If you post this on your story, well, we'll I pick thought that it was winner. a free one that you could order, but you just had to pay for shipping. Oh, dude, you're right. I mean, either way, it's a business module that worked because at the end of the day there was millions of girls posting a picture of this red bathing suit on their stories I know. including girls that i knew yeah. if i remember correctly oh, yeah. oh plenty absolutely i might have even reposted it yeah i think i had a girlfriend at the time i could have used it as a gift <laughs> <laughs> hey babe have you seen this red bathing suit before <laughs> yeah 300 times <laughs> but um I mean, I guess that's kind of a good way to jump right into this. Yeah. This scam idea. Jeez, that, that's a big word. You're, you're throwing out a, a, a large term for the audience here. When I, in fact, do giveaways, so I'm feeling a little bit oppressed right now. No, that that's... Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, no, I'm just messing with you, man. Completely different. I'm totally messing with you. I think that giveaways are an important part of any business. You Absolutely. have to be able to draw on a crowd. And you, at the end of the day, you're getting your product, if you have a good product, into the hands of plenty of people. It works, for sure. So there's definitely scams. I totally agree. Like, David Dobrik giving away a Tesla is like, one, you're going to get great content out of it and views and shit, like, which is what he's always kind of trying to do. But right. at the same time, it's kind of bullshit. And like, also, he gets a picture of him smiling ear to ear, standing in front of a Tesla spread everywhere. I mean, that'd be pretty dope. You mean, I mean, think about how many pictures of him standing, sitting ear to ear in front of a Tesla he has, though. Like, that, that is like his iconic look. Yeah. He is the Tesla guy. He is, he doesn't he do most of it? I mean, I don't, I'm not really the biggest David Dobrik guy. No, I I'm can't say I get on. The YouTube's too often to watch him. I've watched a single video of his. I've I watched. Know that I relatively look like. Him. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say that the only times I've seen his videos were with my sister, with Eileen. So, I guess if it's outside of that, yeah, I could care less. But apparently, people love his stuff, you know. And I, I can't say I'm into the whole fascination of like, what did he do? Like prank people, I think. No. Or he just gives shit away. I think he's just a vlogger. No, but I think he, like, gives his friends, like, Lamborghinis and stuff fairly often. <laughs> like, he, like, just, like, pulls them into his... I think, it, from what I remember, I think he just, like, pulls people into his Tesla and's like, you want a Lamborghini? And they're like, yeah, of course. And he's like, I got you one. What? <laughs> yeah. I think, like, that's the premise of most How of his videos. How is that a successful model for anything? I mean, if you have the money, shit, spend it. Like, oh. I, I can only imagine the branding deals that he's signing are just absurd. Probably, like, $500,000 for a video because at the end of the day the brand's going to see the feedback you get five, what does he get like I want to say it's anywhere between like 5 and 10 million views of video oh, so $500,000 is a very appropriate thing and this is only something I've recently begun to understand right. because of like the business I'm in is that like you have to put so much money into advertising oh yeah it's insane well something that I've noticed in my time as a musician is that um it's often the same way with, with sponsorships and with endorsements for artists because, you know, Neil Peart, may he rest in peace, and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about him more if we're talking about my influence as a musician, but, you know, Rush stepped away for a while from touring and making music, and eventually they put out sort of like a reunion stuff, and they went on that final tour, which I was, I was lucky enough to see them on. Did you um, hear that Neil Peart would ride his motorcycle in between every city of that tour? Absolutely. Isn't that so sick? Absolutely. Yeah, he was a huge motorcycle driver. When, he, uh, when his first wife passed away from cancer, he went on a spontaneous, essentially didn't tell anyone, went on a cross-country motorcycle ride. Uh, and the entire time thought about whether he wanted to continue being in rush because he told getty lee before he left 
to consider him retired and that he was going to go off, which he did. But then that time he spent thinking about it and reflecting on it. And he realized like, I guess that's a part of his life that just can't, could never go away. And it, you know, it was his, his, his being, but what, but what I was saying about the, the sponsorships is that, you know, DW drums and Zildjian, and I think actually, I think he uses Sabian DW and Sabian are constantly giving him money. Even after rush is not right. doing things. Cause he's a signed artist because he's, He's Neil fucking Pert. I mean, he's one of the most famous drummers of all time. He's the, he's the professor. Um, and so many artists these days are making a living by doing that and by having endorsements as opposed to being in full-time projects because of the way the music industry has shifted with streaming, with no one going to live music anymore. With those things, it's just impossible to try and make a record and then go on tour and then make another record to go on tour. Right. That's just not a narrative that works in 2020 anymore. It, it hasn't, worked, hasn't worked since 2014 or 2013 when Spotify, Spotify hit its boom. Yeah. I and mean, as a result of that, the brands are the most important part. Totally. And it's great that like the people at DW and the people at Zildjian are such amazing folks and are willing to constantly support ours. Just not those, not just those brands, obviously Pearl and Peisty and, Everyone, are you out here like trying to search for a brand deal right now? We could just get that right out in the air. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've been trying to get a DW endorsement since I was 11 years old. I'll I'll just come right out and say that. But can you come out and say, Have you met Neil Pert? No, 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 I never met him. He's one of your few, yeah, uh, not yet uh, met, uh, or I guess now, yeah, you couldn't, but it's 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 sad. It is, uh, dude. It was, did you know he was he was dead for two days before, yeah, they even released it? That's you know, I kind of that's amazing to me, especially in this day and age, that somebody who is not only just the best at what he ever did, but I mean, just beloved by everybody, right? And they took that time to really reflect and like honor his life absolutely as a as the people who are most close to him so that that's something i really appreciate but but step back you you're, you're 11 years old you're coming to me you're telling me you want a brand deal right now and so for those of you who don't know mike and i we've built this relationship six years we've been best friends ever since i i mean yeah okay it's a funny story actually i was incredibly intimidated by you i I think I've told you this before. I, Mike comes on the campus as a freshman, and everybody knows him. He's popular. He's got all the friends. He's got anything and everything you're looking at. He's genius, by the way. So, And I'm just like me. Uh, I've always been, believe it or not, kind of introverted to a certain extent. And so one day I remember, I think I found your Twitter and you had dancing bears in your bio, or is your header? And I was like, oh, okay, he likes the Grateful Dead. I like the Grateful Dead. I wonder if he likes fish. So, like, one day I, I pulled a gumption together to walk up to him. And this is like in the middle of the locker room. I think we're both like half naked and we're having this conversation. <laughs> and I go, hey, man, I saw that you like the Grateful Dead. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess from there, we just kind of hit it all. Well, it was that way for a while before you, before you introduced fish to me. Um, Right, so you, and then I went on to ask, like, do you like fish? And you're like, I only know uh, the one tune. Have you ever heard of it? Big black furry creature from no, no, Mars? No, 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 no. It's, it was McGrupp. Oh, it was McGrupp. But I, I, I thought oh, it was that, called right. McGrupp and the Watchful Horsemasters. That's right. That's <laughs> not right. Horsemasters. So I was like, yeah, it's this one song. Well, I also knew Llama because that was on Rock Band. Oh, yeah. But McGrupp was the first YouTube video of fish that I ever watched. And I remember I was, I was like 12 or 13, and I was like – 
what is this? Like, this is so weird. And the drummer has a dress on and he's like <laughs> fat. And like, <laughs> and like, they're not very good. And he like, does like the eating thing. I'm and... like, okay, yeah, this, this Trey guy is cool. Like, he's got a flyer shirt on. Like, I, I, I dig that. Like, <laughs> like, you know, but. I, and I'm a Rangers like, fan, like, but I get it. Song? Like he looks too much like Dave. They keep saying this. Oh, I'm like, who is Dave? And what the hell are they talking about? So I, when you asked me that, I was like, yeah, that song about the horse masters, which is really weird. And which I think you're talking about like the horse, which is actually right. a song. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, like the horse into a silent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now I've, I've just, you know, I've just cursed myself because I've seen fish 27 times to this day. And I still haven't seen McGrupp. That's right. I, I don't think you'll ever see it, to be honest with you, though. Yeah, I mean, so. it's one of it's one of the tunes that they've thrown in the bag, and they probably won't pull it out yeah. any. Maybe once, once a, every decade or so. But anyways, but we were we were we were pretty close in high school, especially yeah. my junior year and your right. Senior so year. we move out of that year, we become pretty close, and then we really became close. So we were we were friends. We had each other's phone numbers. We'd say what's up in the hallway. Uh, I think I met your dad and got him to love me because, you know, I have that kind of personality occasionally. <laughs> and so... My dad may not be easy. Yeah, I know, which is shocking, right? I mean, he's a beauty, but sometimes he's intimidating. But, um, so, one night, Dead and Company, it's actually my birthday, November oh, 5th, yeah. 2015. Yep. And your mom gets Dead and Company tickets. Yes. I think it was that, and then you invited me? Yeah. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay, so I, I think, no, I think... I had originally also been going, but we didn't know we were each going yet. Mm, I think that's and we right. coordinated it to the point where your mom is able to pick us up at school. But this is the first time you were able to leave campus on a weeknight. Like yeah. your mom was terrified. Yeah. So she comes, picks us up, and she's like, Did you tell everyone that you're leaving? Is everything gonna be all right? Do I need to call the headmaster? Yeah. Like yeah. I'm like, Mrs. Quiro, it's okay. You know, they're My gonna storm supervisor's a deadhead. Yeah. I'm like, the the dorm we're living in the guy is like he traveled out to california after his senior year of high school he was there for jerry's funeral and so uh everybody understood we were all on the same page and this is the night that our friendship went just to a whole nother level we go see dead and company in philly in philly at the wells fargo Fargo center Center. and um i mean uh it was it was a a great night to say the least i mean yeah oh was that the night that you met uh our friend gianna as well I think I met her that night. Yeah, and then we and built then, that but, relationship but then we, we as well. Saw, well. Then we saw Denko the next summer. Together, right, and at City at Field, Field, all three of us. But um, So that night, we just kind of hit it off, and I was like, shit, this kid's awesome. So <laughs> no, we just became best friends, and now we're here, and we do the same thing every time we get together, and nothing's going to change. No. Because, uh, you know, it's you're one, one of the few people in my life who I don't, have to have any barriers up with and i say this from a really genuine place where it's like um i can act like a freaking 12 year old and you're not gonna give a shit so like yeah because i act like 11 year old right but we read at a sixth grade level so we're really thriving (laughs) yeah i still do absolutely but um there you lived a whole life before you and i ever became friends yeah this is that's one way to put it for sure i mean what's the uh the long strange trip as the grateful dead would put it (laughs) so so when what age are you when you're like i'm going to be a child prodigy and first of all how did you one realize your town isn't drumming and then two just like where does this all come from like was it your parents influence was it the culture you were raised in i mean yeah so 
it goes back a while. Um, I want to go as far back as you yeah, can remember. I, so, so I was nine years old. I have two younger sisters. They're twins, Sarah and Sophia, um, whom I love to death. They're amazing, and they're also my number one fan. So, absolutely, and they were very young. Uh, they're six and a half years apart from me. So, they were three, and I was nine. And my mom needed some help because there was two of them. So um, they had, my mom hired um, a babysitter um, who ended up being named Peggy. And Peggy herself had a family of five or six kids. And a couple of them overlapped in age with me. And a couple of them were older than me. And they were some of my first friends and some of my first exposure to people older than my age which was is a kind of a, a running trope to this story mm-hmm. i think and i remember one day we were you know we, we became pretty close friends at this point like just me and the Sto- the stovers are their names the kids and one day we went and bought a copy of guitar hero 2 oh on that's game my changer. playstation 2 uh which i which i had wanted because i was like I mean, it's Guitar Hero, right? It's got a guitar. You hold the guitar. It's got yeah. the buttons on the guitar. It's great. You don't have to actually learn the you music. You don't have to learn the guitar. You're just looking at the screen. The music. Um, now, nine years old is what grade? Is this like third grade? Third grade-ish? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so we we often played this game together, Guitar Hero. It, it's great. Guitar Hero 2 is a great game. Guitar Hero 3 is cool too, and I had that, but Guitar Hero 2 is awesome. Is that the one with... Um, through the fire and the flames. No, that's Guitar Hero Three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Guitar Hero Two is kind of like the the the. That's the uh, more the, mellow, the prehistoric one. mellow one. But yeah. it still had it had Freebird on it. Yeah, so that's how that's I learned about Freebird. Freebird yeah. the song, which obviously is important. And An important you, moment. You crush it, and your dad's like, "How did you not know about Freebird before you played this game?" <laughs> yeah. So I I you know I admittedly was not that good at Guitar Hero at the beginning. I just played on 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 easy and medium, um, but. Around this time, around the time of Guitar Hero 2 and Guitar Hero 3, um, a game came out that was called Rock Band. Mm -hmm. And I wanted Rock Band because you could play other instruments besides guitar, namely the drums. Uh, So I was like, well, this is great. It's like Guitar Hero, but it's got a drum set, which is exactly what it is, even though the, the Rock Band drum set is just four pads. Right. So we got Rock Band... I got it. I think I got it for Christmas that year. I was ecstatic. I set it up immediately and uh, I picked up the sticks and started playing. And uh, it was it was it was it was it was great. It was really easy. And uh, I was almost like, too easy. I was like, like, yeah, this is cool. But like, I could probably I think I could play on medium or hard right now. It was the first day, and I beat the game on medium. And I was like, like full one hundred percent perfect. Jeez. Not 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 perfect, but just but you know, you I got the, through it. Beat the game. Yeah. All you have to do is pass all the songs and play the different gigs or whatever. There's like a story mode. Right. But I also just played through a bunch of the songs and I was like, this is fine. Um, and then I got to hard on my first day, and it was it was tough. I I that's the point where like on the higher difficulty songs, I would fail the song and I get mad at myself, which started my my perfectionism in music right at a, <laughs> at a young age, and. uh so I, you know, I kept playing rock band, and my parents knew about it at this point. Um, and then one day, when I was, when I was, uh, I think I had turned ten at this point. But yeah, I had turned ten at this point, and I asked my parents that I wanted, I wanted to take music lessons. And they're like, "Do you want to play guitar? Do you want to play drums?" And I said, "I think I want to play guitar because I was still, I was still stuck on this guitar thing because you can play guitar in rock band too, and it was fun." Right. And 
I remember we went to Toys R Us and got one of those shitty first act guitars for like like forty bucks or whatever, and it was fun. But but you know, anything about anything about guitars, like it's if you know anything, it's like just impossible at the beginning. I mean, you're supposed to start on acoustic, so you build those those calluses in your fingers, mm-hmm. and it's so disheartening. Like even the most basic chords just feel so alien. And it feels like you shouldn't even like be digging into your fingers that hard with something, and I, and I, I hated the sensation of it, so I stopped and I told my parents I wanted to play I wanted to play drums, so I I wanted to take drum lessons. So I was really lucky because uh, where I used to live, which was a little closer to South Jersey. Little, oh, so you're in South Jersey at this point. This you're is, not even yeah, up no, the, yeah, in the, the P town. Princeton's yet. five years away from this point. Really? This oh, is wow. this is when I lived in a small town called North Hanover, which is. Um, about it's not south jersey don't let him tell you that i mean it's burlington <laughs> county man like <laughs> i mean we could have this debate for hours fine, fine yeah <laughs> no i, I mean we're not getting into that yet but no south on the on the border of south and central jersey i guess there you go very central close, jersey very close to six flags that's the that's the biggest marker is where i live there's a small town called new egypt and new egypt is essentially just one street just a main street and on this main street there happened to be a music store that was called sweet music academy it's about seven minutes from my house very close and they do music lessons of instruments and kids of all ages can go. So I started taking drum lessons with a guy named Brian Broson, who was my first teacher ever. And at the beginning, you're just working on a practice pad, just like that circular rubber yeah. pad. I, I have we have like 10 of them at our house because my sister used to play. <laughs> a, she would I, lose them all the time. Room, oh, yeah. Yeah. Drum equipment is so, so fickle and so easy to lose. And... Um, my, my parents tell this story a little differently than I do this part of it, but, and I actually don't even remember at this point, but apparently, um, Brian gave me like a book of basic stickings, like basic rudiments, uh, which is like patterns of sticking. So like right, left, right, right is a paradiddle. That's a rudiment. You can flip that left, right, left, left. He gave me like a whole page of stuff to practice and said, go home, put on a metronome, pick up the sticks and hit the pad of this. I was like, great. It's my first week. I came back and I had done the entire like packet of, of worksheets he had given me because I, I just practiced so much that I worked through it all. And you're like the kid, like he's shocked, I'm sure. And he, he was like, up. okay, let's do this next exercise. And I was like, I, you know, Brian, I, <laughs> I, I, I thought I had to do this entire thing. So I did the whole, I, like I did the whole packet already and he was blown away and yeah. that's where it started. And, you know, I had to be on the pad for a couple weeks because it, it was just not possible to own a drum set at that point. And my parents were facing a very important problem, which was um, I've got sisters that are four years old that are trying to sleep and grow. Right. (laughs) And now I want to have a drum set in the house. Yeah. So finally, after like two months, Brian pulled my parents aside and was like, you you need to get this kid a drum set. Like we need to see what what he's got. So there was a drum set that had been sitting in the lobby of Sweet Music Academy since I had started taking lessons there. And I, I had been eyeing it the whole time it's this it was it's this tan tan pearl kit like very very beginner's kit and i i had wanted it the entire time and i knew it was used and there was a pretty good deal on it so my parents ended up just buying that and getting that for me which i'm so thankful for and the only problem was i didn't know how to set up a drum set so <laughs> oh, yeah so brian and a guy named John Grill. John worked behind the desk at Sweet Music Academy and also was a drummer who went to Berkeley and was taught. Oh, so this guy also stud. Yes, also yeah. stud. Brian Brian also was a stud. He didn't study at Berkeley, but you don't need to. 
And <laughs> you want to tell, tell some Berkeley <laughs> stories? And um, so, so one night, John and Brian came to my house and set up my drum set and these Sabian B8 cymbals for me, like the most beginner set cymbals. And it, it was like the greatest thing ever to me. Like I remember it so vividly. We set it up downstairs in my dad's like man cave bar room thing. Mm. Uh, were they some the specimens corner. of beauty? Definitely, definitely. <laughs> the drums were definitely spe- the cymbals were brand new, but the drums were definitely some specimens of beauty. And I still have them to this day, and they're they're collecting dust in the corner. I think I need to get rid of them. I'm ho- I, I'm a every musician's a hoarder, but I I really feel like the cymbals or the drums the drums oh so I you really still feel like a special draw. would they be if you like repaste the pads and everything would you be able to like give them to someone who's looking to get started in definitely. music definitely and that's what i actually did with my first set of cymbals i gave them to my friend of mine's younger brother who was starting so. that's awesome you, it's like a circle of life on. almost yep, yep. absolutely um but yeah but they they really need to be restored there's like rust all over them and shit anyways so they came over and i was like I actually had never heard John Grill, this guy, play drums, even though I knew he could. So I, you know, I told him to sit down and play, and he did, and it just blew my mind. And one of the things that he played, which he told me, he said, "You'll learn this someday," is the beat to "Fool in the Rain" by Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. That shuffle. It's called the it's called the Purdy Shuffle. It's named after this drummer named Bernard Purdy because he would play that shuffle all the time on records, on songs, and they'd become hits like Babylon Sisters, Steely Dan. So many examples of his playing. I mean, he's, he's just a master session musician. But Bonham repurposed that beat and made it like heavier and more Zeppelin sound. Uh-huh. And it just blew my mind. It just blew the roof off the top of my head. And you're like, I'm figuring this out and tonight. I'm, like, I'm going to figure this out. No, and I, and I, I couldn't that night. I, I was not that good. But in a couple months, I figured it out. Yeah, you're like, I this, and so that's what kind of kicked you off. That's where you, well, your that's, energy was that's really. That's where I learned about Led Zeppelin. And that's really all it took was so your dad's a zeppelin fan right my dad's is a huge music fan now growing up were you listening to zeppelin classic rock absolutely and it was anything and everything you just didn't really ever think like i want to learn how to play this on any instrument i mean i mean not not 24 7 like i don't want to i don't want to uh make this like cheesy and sappy and be like i was i came out of the womb listening to led zeppelin too you know that's not true um, I probably came. Oh, I did come out of the womb though, listening to Blackbird by the Beatles. Oh, what, I do you, know that. My you, dad played that. Right, your dad was telling me that story yeah, once, which is awesome, and I, I love that song for that reason. Um, but my parents followed the Dead in the '80s, late '80s and early '90s. So I have to this day still just hundreds of Dead CDs floating around of bootlegs and and also Dick's picks and shows like right. you know official releases as well. Totally, but. You know, one of one of the earliest memories of my life is we were going to uh, we were going up to the Poconos, the Great Wolf Lodge. Oh, what a spot. spot! Did you play Magi Quest? Oh, of course I did. With the wands? Oh Are yes, that is the biggest scheme. Of, if yeah, you want to talk yeah, about yeah. schemes, well, let's open up a hotel and make kids pay a hundred bucks for this wand oh, that they can run around the hotel run and... and activate shit with. Dude, but that, was that not like the best the day of your life? Best though? weekend of my life. I think we went there three years in a row for my birthday oh, yeah. and always brought my buddies so that we oh, could all play magic. And that and one disgusting of, water park, it was Oh, great. I know. And there was the one buddy, my one buddy, Hunter. I, I've actually talked about Hunter in another episode. He was so good at the damn game and he was just constantly going and just beating it or whatever you do. Like he was... I think you had the, it was like a scavenger hunt almost. Yeah, yeah and pretty much. He was just so much better at this scavenger hunt than I ever would be in my life. Well, also, and there was a, there was this like hierarchy of needs where it's like 
<laughs> older kids had an advantage. Older kids who still wanted to play Magi Quest had an advantage because they could get away from their parents to like go around the hotel and right. point the wand at shit. Yeah. But like I couldn't because I was with my little sisters. Oh and right. With my family most of the time. And they're not moving with you. You're not sprinting around the no. hotel with and them. My, and my friend, my, my one of my best friends, whom you've met, Garrett. Oh, yeah. We went to Great Wolf Lodge together and did the Magi Quest thing. Oh, and I yeah. Have, I have this picture of him that's still his contact photo in my phone of him, like, in the... Uh, in the elevator of Great Wolf Lodge, in one hand he's got the wand, and in the other hand he brought a laser pointer because this was the age where like you you Wait, fucked around you, with laser pointers just to mess with. They people. had it at book fairs, right? Right. <laughs> and and Garrett's pointing this laser pointer into the mirror, like back at him. Like that's I, I swear to God, I can show you it after. Like <laughs> it's it's awesome. And every time he calls me, that's what comes that's up. It's like Garrett is. is like a ten year old. That's amazing. Anyways, um, we were going up to Great Wolf Lodge, and my dad was like, "Can I put something on?" And my mom was like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, he, he never does that. The aux and, cord's like getting invented at and, this time, and, right? Like, you're, No, this was on CD. Definitely Oh, CD. CD. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and he put on Dark Side. Oh. And it was the first time I ever heard Dark Side of the Moon. And I was driving through these mountains and it was snowing. And like, I swear to God, to this day, I hear Dark Side of the Moon. And I still think of that day. That's I amazing. Still, I still have that picture in my head. So... So yeah, I was exposed to that music as a kid, but totally. I I went on my own then and listened to the entire Zeppelin catalog, the entire Pink Floyd catalog, the entire Beatles catalog, and just could not stop playing, could not stop thinking about playing drums. Right. I'd play for five or six hours a day, every day. So that's kind of where how you went from being 10-year-old Moke, who is good at drums, able to pick it up fairly fast for someone who had never really had experience playing the instrument before to how do you get the child prodigy at the age of 12? Right. Um, it's, 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 it's the work. It's, it's, it's 10,000 hours. That's yeah. what it is. And it's a true thing, but it's not possible to hit 10,000 hours in two years. I don't think I've actually even hit 10,000 hours of playing yet. And I've been playing for 11 years at this point, but it accelerated the process for sure. To the point where when I was 11, I realized that I needed to be playing, needed to be trying to play shows. So I played a show at Sweet Music Academy. We kind of formed this like little band there. And I played in a karate studio. It was my first show ever. I played in a karate studio. Was it for like kids? No, nah, there, there, was, there was adults there. Oh, really? Yeah, That's yeah, awesome. But like it was full, fully in a karate studio with chairs. It was pretty cool. Um, I, still, I still have pictures of that too. I think you've seen. I think it's your dad's favorite pastime to videotape you playing music. <laughs> yeah, there's, so there's, there's, there's I've so definitely many. seen it. There's just so many. So after this first performance, this is in December when I was 11, 2000. This is 2011. I saw, I was flipping through VH1 magazine, and I saw an advertisement for this program that was called Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, and it was advertised as a way for people to sort of live a rock star lifestyle for a weekend. Mm -hmm. People who play instruments at essentially any level could pay a pretty hefty amount of money to go to a city and it's like all expenses paid and you get to like meet these people and jam with them and at the end of the weekend you get to record an album in a studio or record a couple songs in a, in a state-of-the-art studio like a perfect like one a famous studio in wherever city it's happening and then also play like a pretty big gig at a pretty pretty big venue in whatever city it is. That's sick. And you I mean, also get to meet one big rock star. Mm -hmm. 
So and that's like a guarantee. Like right, and and that's you, the advertising draw. If you don't meet this rock star, I want my money back. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I see this ad for this program advertising rock and roll fantasy camp in New York City, January 2012. It's like it was in a couple weeks uh, with Roger Daltrey. Oh yeah. So I asked my mom if that could be my like that could be my Christmas present, like or something that they would consider getting me for Christmas. And to make a, to make a long story short, because I'll circumnavigate back to this, is uh, I woke up on Christmas morning and it was like, "You're going to this thing. You're gonna do it. We're gonna stay in New York City at the, at you know at the Hilton in Midtown. Oh uh, yeah, we know the hotel. We're gonna go to Gibson Studios and you're gonna be playing at BB King's. That's and I had so only played sick. one show before at a karate studio. So so you're freaking so out. So you know I freaked out <laughs> and practiced a lot and and all that. But um, <laughs> my mom had called. The CEO of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, or had gotten in touch with their with their management advertising, um, because she wasn't sure that it was for kids or that kids would even be allowed. Right. And she was like, you know, I, I, my son's 11, but he's you know he's really becoming a, a great player, and he really wants to do this. Like this would be such a such a dream of his. Um, he's so into this music already. Would you be willing to let him come? And their response was essentially. He can absolutely come, but there are going to be adults and rock stars drinking, and anything he sees or hears, we're not responsible for. Because he's. Did you have to sign like a lease or something? No. Yeah. no. Oh, oh, that's nice. No legally bound. No, contract. no legally bound stuff, but just you know the possibility for just classic trauma. Anybody, <laughs> anybody who knows Mike's mom too knows. Right. As you can imagine this phone call. Right. She's laughing at the end of it. Ah, right. oh, he's fine. Yeah. He loves it. But it's essentially it's essentially a, a, a camp advertised to to men going through midlife crises who right. played guitar in college, who know three chords <laughs> and now want to be rock stars. Right. right. Like it's it's great. Yeah. And, and and I I I love I love David Fishoff and Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, and I'm so thankful for what they did for me because when I got on the scene there in New York City when I was 11 it was like there were just spotlights on me immediately yeah because there's this kid here there's an there's, there's a kid 11 year old right and I was I was scared shitless for most of that weekend just trying to prove my own but you just felt intimidated more than right, anything but one of the things that kept me grounded one of the people that kept me grounded was david osakinen who's the drummer of the hooters which oh is yeah 80s band in philly which i am 100 percent positive your parents know about because my parents knew about i mean that. the hooters are great i i was introduced uh, my parents listened to the hooters one of the bands that i mean my dad as a kid we had the big thick ipod classic oh yeah and we'd play uh this game when and we'd go on a lot of road trips and such and we'd play a uh, pass the ipod where everyone in the family it's like pick one song and just pass it around in the loop and my dad hooters all the time hooters that's awesome time. yeah um anyways david was the counselor if you will of my band so he's like the like not as famous guy who's still kind of famous who like runs the band to famous make sure enough. we sound to make sure we sound good enough to like go on stage after three days of playing right and one of the reasons why my mom was sure that we could do this program was because she had gotten in touch with David beforehand. And David was like, David, I mean, David's been a teacher, a drum teacher for like 20, 30 years on top of being, you know, a, a to this day, touring musician and gigging musician and endorsed by DW, you know, hello. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and just knows everybody. And it's just, it's just so well connected and just such, such an amazing person. Anyways, he really took me under his wing and was like, you know, we're going to do this. 
and we're going to be great. And, and, and he heard me playing and I'm so thankful for this. He was just immediately like, this kid's got it. Um, which was, which was just so reassuring for me, especially in that environment. But I met some, I met some really, really, really amazing people that weekend that I'm still friends with to this day in the, in the music industry. Um, couple couple names while wow, the rain is really yeah i just up. picked up on him uh, catching it a bit kip winger really nice guy so cool my parents were like you're literally meeting the people we listen to on the radio at the age of 11 which just must have been so surreal man like i can't even imagine what that must have been like anyways so this first weekend um went well and i i held my own and the last day comes and I get to meet Roger Daltrey and we're rehearsing at Montana studios in New York city. And we heard he was on his way and in the cab over here and all this stuff, because he gets like 10 minutes with, you get like 10, 15 minutes with each of with, you get 10 to 15 minutes with him because there's like five or six bands that he's got to go around to. Right. I'm sure they don't have him for the whole day. Cause he's fucking he's, Roger Daltrey. He's famous, you know, yeah, he's pretty famous. Yeah, yeah. And, People have heard the name <laughs> and he walks in and it just like felt like this aura, like this energy walked into the room. And he's like 5'3". Is he really? So tiny. So like you're like 11 years old, you're the same height as him. Yes. yes. Wow. To the, it's so, the picture of us is hysterical. And I, you know, I was 11, so God, you know, I, my, if you thought my fashion sense was bad in eighth grade, like, you know, I've got like... Was this punk rock? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. This, this is sneakerhead, Mike. This is, no, no, no. This is, this is proto sneakerhead, Mike. This is like... This is like I didn't even like my my like my parents probably still dressed me at this point. Like, oh, I know, I see that we're was in not like... true. I I that day I had on like a cool Tommy Who shirt, jeans, and this like you know Ryder University, like, oh, yeah, Ryder yeah. University baseball cap because I'd done a baseball program there a year ago and I was obsessed with wearing this hat. Yeah. I was insecure about my hair, which which I mean... clearly you know <laughs> clearly didn't really change that much. And he comes in, he's just so charming, so nice to everybody, and. uh he was just blown away because it's like, you know, the band is like five or six old dudes. And then he <laughs> <laughs> like, who so brought he, their son with them? So he, yeah, so he comes up and he's like standing in front of the drum set, like, you know, leaning over it, looking at me. And I'm like, I, like, I can't even believe this. And he's like, well, who are you then? And I was like, I was like, you know, I, I'm Mike, you know, whatever. My voice was probably so high pitched. I introduced myself and we played uh, Can't Explain. Okay. Which is a good song, good but like, tune, you yeah. know, I wish we played like Drowned or like <laughs> Rain Over Me. I wish I like, could have played Llama for him. Yeah, or like Going Mobile, like like a cooler Who song. But I yeah. didn't know that much Who then. Yeah. Who was one of those bands that I was like, oh, like, you know, I've heard of them, but, you know, I'm a Zeppelin guy. Uh, which is hysterical because the argument pretty much is between John Bonham and Keith Moon, the drummer of The Who for greatest drummer of all time. Right. And... I knew a little bit about Keith Moon. I knew that he exploded his drum set at one time, played a drum set that had goldfish in it, but I didn't know how like you know just bombastic and inspiring he is. And we get done playing, and Roger Daltrey says to me, he turns to me and he says, "Oh, you're like a little Mooney back there," and like instantly that changed my life. I, I mean, who knows whether he meant it or not? But Roger Daltrey turned to me and compared me to. The only drummer he's essentially ever worked with besides Ringo Starr's son. Right. And compared me to one of the greatest drummers of all time, and I was 11. So I was pretty blown away then. And another person... And you're feeling pretty good about yourself. You're no longer feeling... 
nervous about being there. Right. I mean, how could you? And and you right, know, he was he was so nice to my mom and just like encouraged to me. This is when my mom was in like full momager, like manager. manager. Oh yeah, is she and, like wait, is she friends with him on Facebook? Not with not with Roger Daltrey. Yeah, oh. <laughs> but she, I know she's friends with, like everybody yeah, else yeah, on yeah, Facebook because yeah. of this momager there's, like, gig. This, there's this great picture of like. Her and Roger Daltrey like full on like hugging like having just kissed like on the lips. Oh, that's funny. It's just like just so great like moments like that. But um, one of the one of another person that was in that room watching me play, which I did not know then, was a guy named Mark Hudson. And Mark is one of the most storied producers of all time. He was also in the Hudson Brothers. He also produced Mbop by oh. Hanson. Okay. He also wrote Living on the Edge by Aerosmith. Uh-huh. He also has produced Ringo's solo albums. He's also gone to parties with Paul McCartney and Joni Mitchell. So he's, he's a pretty big deal. He's the big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and he was there. The only reason why I remember he was there is because he had on a purple velvet suit. Oh, wow. Long hair and a tie-dyed beard. Did he kind of look like Tom Petty, but like without like... So much cooler than Tom Petty. <laughs> so much awesome. cooler than Tom Petty could ever ever be and he had oh yeah and he had a beret on he always has a beret on and his nails painted that's his look that's been his look for the last 50 years oh my god it's amazing he, but he is not 5'3 he's like fucking 6'3 or 6'4 and just this huge <laughs> towers over you yes and he scared the shit out of me and he always 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 was so nice to me and was so so cool and always was just like he was kind of like the first figure at that camp that was like now I know you're hot shit, but let me tell you why you're not hot shit. Right, he's gonna be the per- one person who doesn't pump your tires. And he's that always weekend. been that way. Yeah, um, and he always referred to me as the sperm cell. It's <laughs> <laughs> like you're an always. eleven year old. You're an eleven year old. You're meeting this guy, and you're like, he's calling you the sperm cell, and you're like, dude, I haven't even hit puberty yet. I, I don't know what the like, fuck you're talking about. I go into this jam session with Mark Hudson, Kip Winger, Richie Kotzen, who's played with like. Mike Portnoy and the Winery Dogs and 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 you know just a room full of rock stars and Mark Hudson's like oh the sperm cells here we can finally fucking start and I'm oh. <laughs> and I think Mark Hudson is the reason why David Fishoff gave my mom that that disclaimer about anything Michael sees or hears we're not responsible and, or anything that's directed at Michael we're also not responsible for Mark Hudson's like ready to ruin your life right. if Mark Hudson wants to call you a sperm cell I mean I, I was gonna let him call me a sperm cell and he still calls me that too. did you have that. to like walk out of the room and be like hey mom like quick question what's a yeah, sperm cause... cell <laughs> like you just brush me up real quick like, <laughs> could uh, you could you hear me with that talk that you're supposed to give me in a few I, months I saw Mark last year for the first time in like seven years at a show at the Iridium in, in the city uh-huh. at this like club that's really really famous and we made eye contact a couple times during the show but he like didn't clearly didn't recognize me enough to say anything and also he was, it was it was his gig it was his show I wasn't expecting that um, but he comes up to me afterwards I, I finally got a chance to talk to him afterwards and he just gave me a big hug and he's like and I was like do you remember who I am He's like, sperm cell! <laughs> it's great to see you! He said, he said of course I do. <laughs> you fucking sperm cell. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that you can't make up yeah. either. I mean, where does he... First of all, sperm cell, what the hell is that even... Yeah. I guess that means you're talented. I mean, yeah. guess your dad did something right. <laughs> yeah, well, it just means you're so young, you shouldn't be here right. doing this and be this good. So, you're, you're 11 years old at this time. So, that was the first time I played Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. And I met Roger Daltrey. Did you do so? You've done the rock and roll fantasy camp multiple times. Yeah, so I've I've done five total. I was just thinking about them. But the reason why I got to do five, as I said, it's 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 pretty expensive. Was 
um, the camp sort of saw the, 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 we're talking about this earlier, the marketing potential, the, mm-hmm. the potential, not, 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 not a scam in any way, but just, just a marketing potential for people who aren't 55 years catching old, eyeballs, this, getting more people program. So the next time I was in, actually every time after I was in rock and roll fantasy camp, I was always in like a kid band with kids my age. Oh, that's and sick though. It was really, really cool because it all kind of happened at once with my friend Miles, who is a really, really successful radio broadcaster and does some awesome interviews of rock stars. He was doing it then because he had the platform to do it then. He's been just doing it to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a program called The Shoe because his name's Schumann, but I don't know if it's <laughs> I don't know if it's still that way. Anyways, and he was playing bass, and his brother Alvin played guitar. We had a band. That's awesome. And we had we had we had a, I think we had a we had a we had a singer or something. But anyways, the next camp I did was. At, we got to play at Woodstock. We got to play at Bethel Woods. No way. Yeah, but that's pretty sick. But Bethel Woods has changed a lot since then, and you know the original stage where Woodstock was is just a big field now. Right. But it, and it was a field two days before but, but, but Woodstock. Right. And, but I, I've, you know, I've been there and I've played there, and the the, the venue they have there is amazing. It's like an amphitheater. Mm-hmm. But contrary to when I played at BB King's in New York City on a Saturday night, uh, when there were like a thousand people there. You're up in Woodstock, New <laughs> York, where there was nobody. Woodstock, I was like, "Holy shit! I'm 12 years old. I'm playing at Woodstock. Like, you know, this is like every every young musician's dream." And there were like five people there. Yeah, because you know you're in the middle of <laughs> quite we literally on, nowhere. Yeah, and we went on first because we were the kids' band and stuff like that. So I was I was upset about that. But this night's really important to me because after that show, I went to my first like party ever. Yeah, and you're like 11 years old, getting drunk. I was I was I think I was 12 at this point. But okay, no, 12. I, no, I didn't get drunk. Um, I, I, I didn't do anything, but it, it, it exposed me in a way because, um, you know, I, and I was at this party talking to Mark and talking to the other counselors and famous people there trying to do what I could to, <laughs> to network as a 12 year old. You're networking as a 12 year old, rubbing elbows way, with these big ones. By the way, this is, this, this party's taking place at this like huge house that kind of reminds me of that one Call of Duty map estate. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't equate. Is it like a Fallout? No. What's the one uh, Fallout City or the? There's the one really. It's just like a big house in the woods. Oh, okay. Big multi-story house in the woods with like a hot tub and pool, like this perfect path. So like anybody who's read like a Stephen King novel, kind of picking up what you're putting down and right I remember here. When I was on my way there, the bus. We were driving up through these huge hills, and uh, <laughs> it just felt like it was never ending. And I was sitting next to. Teddy Andriatis, who was the Guns N' Roses keyboard player, That's... talking to him and asking him questions about music theory. <laughs> so ride. you're not even like, what was it like being in Guns N' Roses? No. You're like, if I, I hit the eighth note over the sixth one, like, is it to, weird? I wanted to talk to him about key signatures. Oh my god! That's what I asked him about because I was like, hey Teddy, I've got a, I've got a music question for you. Um, I'm a drummer, and I've been sitting here in these rehearsals, and all these people are talking about these things called chords, and key signatures and key changes what like what is this stuff wait man? so you didn't know any of this no. up until and you're like this stud drummer yeah. like you can figure out a yeah. tune well, just well, by hearing it well not many drummers know really no theory at all and i was curious because i was like listen if i'm going to be sitting in these seven hour rehearsals for the rest of my life with people sitting around talking about which chord works and what's the right chord and what's not I might as well learn what they're fucking talking about right might you're... as well know what they're saying and and maybe be able to offer some advice of some kind so that's when teddy started to talk to me about that stuff and that's i guess that was my first music theory lesson ever but anyways at this party i remember i like i walked away from my parents for a little while 
just kind of exploring this house and I got upstairs and there was like a door closed and I heard like a bunch of like 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 teenage voices behind me. A bunch me. of like thumping as people having no, sex. No, 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 no. It wasn't thumping. Uh, oh. But I, I, I smell this smell. Oh, okay. And I'm like, what is that? And Who had a skunk into the house? Exactly, exactly. There's a skunk in this room. And the door was closed, and I wanted to knock on it so badly. You're so curious. And I wanted to go in. You're like, so guys are playing with the fog machine in there. I can I see it like, coming out from under the door. I was like, oh my god, I'm 12 years old. I just played at Woodstock. Now I'm gonna smoke weed for the first time, <laughs> and it's gonna be the best day of my life. And I, I didn't. So like, you know about weed at this point, though. Like, you're not like, oh, what's that? I, I, I had no idea. I had, I smelled this thing, and I thought, is that, is that, is that the, is that it? What do they call it? Um, chronic is that the the chronic is that the jazz cabbage itself (laughs) in the flesh the devil's lettuce um so that 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 did not happen that night uh but it's kind of indicative of just like the experience at that point the whole rock star lifestyle you're finally starting to see it you actually crack open the door and they're hitting some lines we're getting getting to the playboy mansion story right keep going i mean yeah so for those of you who don't know mike his he whenever we like i guess play the game or whatever three what is it three truths and a lie no two truths and a lie it's like you give three things in your life and mike's one of his is always i met is it um who who's the person you, is it rod stewart i met steven tyler no, at steven the playboy tyler. mansion that's I met, what i said i was met steven tyler at the playboy mansion when fact, i was 12 years old it was also my old. fun fact in college during orientation week and everyone hated me instantly yeah because you're like the asshole like oh look at me i got a but, big but, old but music Columbia, cock. people are flexing i mean there's this other kid in my group who's like oh i've been on three seasons of an hbo show my parents created orange is the new black whatever like <laughs> oh fuck those kids <laughs> you know, but, but like but I had to, I had to prove my worth somehow. Right, right. So, You're, it's, so, it's, it's, a, it's a dick measuring contest it, those it, first few weeks. Yeah, and and it, and it it really is the craziest night of my life, and I don't know if I don't know if it will ever be topped. Um, so this was this was another rock. This was the next rock and roll fantasy camp that I. So did. you're I was, the Playboy Mansion's in California, right? Yep, it's in L.A. So I I get flown out to L.A. It's my first time ever being in L.A. First time ever in California. Your parents go with you? My mom went with me. Oh, Heather at and the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> my dad came out for the concert. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> but for three days leading up to it, when we just had rehearsal, like my, my dad was going to be there, but he's like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the billing of this Rockwell Fantasy Camp is Steven Tyler is the main guy you're going to meet, and you get to play at the Playboy Mansion. And Hugh Hefner's still alive at this point, and the Playboy Mansion's still kind of, you know, kind of its thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it kind of started my inquisitive relationship into LA as a city and whether or not I actually and like being attracted to grown women with big boobs, yeah, whether, whether I actually think it, it's a real place at all. I think is very much a part of this, like this reason that my first experience there was just this giant hallucination, this well, giant quite literally where I was going to rehearsals all day and then going to play at East 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 West Studio where you know Steely Dan and every single hit ever has been recorded there and then on the last night going to play at the Playboy Mansion so this was also with the with the quote unquote kid band so um, the main show is at the Playboy Mansion yes. so like instead of Woodstock or right uh, the venue like like the first show was at, uh, the first one was at BB King's Second right. one was at Woodstock. The third one was also in New York City. That was at the Cutting Room downtown. Oh, that's you've played there recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then, uh, 
and then and then this one was was at the the, the venue was the Playboy Mansion. I was like, I, was like I didn't even know the Playboy Mansion had like a stage, right? Okay, whatever. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know the Playboy Mansion was real. Yeah. So, oh my God, man! Like we got on these buses, they took us there. It's a huge place. It's a it's a it's a mansion. It's huge. And did you go? Were you twelve year old? You asked to partially be like, "There's a swimming pool." Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll get to the swimming pool in a second. So the. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a like whole tour. immediately as we get off the bus there's bunnies there oh it's amazing and and they're for like the 55 year old yeah man yeah, who's going through his midlife are. crisis i was at this point where it's like i you know just start hitting puberty and you're like you know you have that big mouth awkwardness about it right you're like uh you know i'm experiencing these things and these hormones you're and getting like, boners and, for the first right, time and, and, and knowing what and, they are and i don't you know and i don't I don't want people to know that I'm experiencing these things. Yeah. And then you learn that fucking everybody does. And yeah. like, you know, whatever. So, you know, everyone instantly was just like, oh my, like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I mean, there were so many of them. And they like, they took us to this area in the backyard of the mansion that ha- it, they put up like a big tent, huge tent. Like think like kind of like petty graduation, but it oh, was like yeah. completely like, like, you know, like insulated. And, uh, there was a stage that they'd set up there and there was like a huge line of food and catering and drinks and bars and everything and right next to this is the pool and uh and next to that is the grotto like the playboy grotto yeah which i went inside and it was just like this like sweaty little cave next to the pool and i was like okay this is just a sweaty little cave next to the pool and <laughs> nothing like, happens in was, here <laughs> and everyone was like and i was like what you know what happens in here and like you know obviously that question was answered for me um, Why do they got a bunch of empty balloons on the floor in here? <laughs> so the show went well. It was cool, and we actually met Steven Tyler after we played because there was a there were some pretty big issues throughout this night about the contract and about Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp at being at the mansion. Oh, really? Some disagreements between Hugh Hefner and the, the like Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp people. So Hugh Hefner like runs his own show. Yes, and he instructed Hugh Hefner. Sp- it specifically instructed the drummers of the bands to play with these things called hot rods, which are like a bunch of miniature wooden pieces that they bind together to like form a stick. And it's much quieter. Oh, uh, okay. But the problem is hot rods fucking suck to play with, especially when you're trying to rock out at the Playboy Mansion. Right. You're here you trying to play like Zeppelin. And- it, it's, it's, it's like the equivalent of like walking up to the plate with a rubber metal, with a rubber bat right. and trying to use it essentially. Um, Your tools aren't going to so, be so efficient. We we no no one did that obviously. Oh yeah. So he was pretty mad at us, and because he, he needed his beauty sleep because the concert <laughs> started at like nine. You could be like Hugh Hefner was mad at me at some point in my life too. And uh, oh my gosh. So so after we played, they're like, okay, it's time to you know time to go meet Steven. So they escorted us to this side room, kind of near the garage of the mansion, and uh, there was like a line, and we like we like got there and. Um, they specifically instructed us because something had been breached in the contract that we couldn't take pictures with Steven Tyler, which was huge news to us and obviously just fucking gut-wrenching. Like, I, I want my like, money back. I was like, well, I like, literally can't prove that this happened. Yeah, right? if, if I don't have a picture and post it on so well, you're not social media yet, but if we don't have a picture, it didn't happen. Oh, yeah, I was on Facebook at this point. Oh, also, so but, you're but, like, but, yeah, but, but, you're fired up but, to get this picture it, of you it, and Steven Tyler it's up. prehistoric Facebook, you know. So, um, so... <laughs> Finally, he meets us and he sees that we're all like the kids. Right. And he's like, I just saw you guys play. You guys rock. Does he really talk like that? (laughs) (laughs) 
all the time. And he's got these like boots on and these pants and this these like this like shirt that's like dangling off. Like he looks like he just got off stage and it's the eighties again. That's like, amazing. It's fucking his look. It's like he's got the feathers in his hair, like the like dream catcher thing. He's like, you guys rocked. You got it. I want you guys to never ever give up. I want you guys to always remember that you gotta keep pushing on. And you're gonna face so much adversity as being kids. But you just gotta rock. <laughs> and just like kept, and was so, so nice and so supportive. And he totally was like, let's take pictures. Oh yeah. He's like, I wanna take pictures with you. He's guys. like, fuck you, I'll deal with him later. So we did it super quickly before like the management could see it, and that's how I got that picture of me and Steven Tyler. I've got my pink and white Abercrombie striped button down on with right. white jeans and my custom Nike Air Force Ones. So we're moving my, into sneakerhead sneaker money. Okay. Face. But that was the outfit that I chose to wear to the Playboy Mansion. Because <laughs> I thought I looked hot. <laughs> you were like, you think I can get laid? <laughs> you, think, you think these 35-year-old bunnies are, or I guess bunnies are a little bit younger than that. But. So I, uh, I met some famous people that night. I met Julian Lennon, John Lennon's son. Mm-hmm. I met May Pang for the first time of many, who was John Lennon's girlfriend for a while. I met... <laughs> Funny you bring that up. I just finished their doc, their documentary oh, on really? Netflix. It's cool. so good. I've watched it a few times. Yeah. And I met, uh, and by met, I mean I walked by because my dad was like, do not touch him, uh, Ron Jeremy. <laughs> Ron, Jer- Ron Jeremy was just sulking around there for no reason. And I was He's like, just what is this guy friends doing? with everyone. Yeah. And the, the bunnies were crazy. And then at some point, we were whisked away. The kids were whisked away. The kids only. The kids only were whisked away. Yeah. Because it was too late. They wanted to keep partying. So we got put on a bus and sent back. I, you know, I, I went back to the hotel, blah, blah, blah. So years go by, and I finally learned what happened. I finally learned the end of the story very recently when I was working with my friend Maddie Amadola, who I met through Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. And Maddie and I, Maddie's my life coach in so many ways. Uh-huh. And we worked together finally on a project doing, um, composing a score. Your age? Maddie is Maddie's thirty. Oh, okay. So, so he taught me drums, and then he oh. was like, "Dude, I can't teach you drums anymore. I'm right. gonna teach you how to set up a microphone. Okay, now I'm gonna teach you how to arm a track in Logic. Okay, now I'm gonna teach you how to put delay and reverb on a vocal track. Stuff like that. Right, right, right. That's how I learned how to do that. And Maddie and I are still obviously in, a, in amazing contact, and I'm glad we got to work together. Anyways, he finally told me the the story. So there was um, there was a guy named Hans. Hans was there because he is an LA-type mixer, master, mm-hmm. professional studio guy. And there was a bit of a, let's say, disagreement regarding uh, regarding Hans and a bunny. Oh. And a man who represents the said bunny, who some might call pimp, uh, yeah. wanted to start some trouble because right. there was a misunderstanding. I'm 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 thinking about how many details of this I want to share right. to get across the effect. Anyways, there's this disagreement. So, but Hugh Hefner's not in charge of no, the bunnies no, 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 then, no. so Hugh Hefner's in bed at this point. Right, he's asleep, so you know. Hans lifts up his shirt and says, Don't fuck with me. Hans has got Hans is hand packing. cannon. Oh, Hans he's packing. packing. Oh, geez. And there's a bit of a skirmish that breaks out. And everyone at this point's like like pretty drunk. <laughs> and at this point, Apparently, then, pandemonium breaks breaks out, and it's just like, and there's just there's like fights happening. There's bunnies in the pool. There's bunnies on the sides of the pool going at each other. 
There's girls like fisting themselves in the pool. This is probably like every night. I mean, yeah, probably, <laughs> but like this is the point where they're like, we got to get these kids the fuck <laughs> out of here. These kids legally can't see. Like, this is where like we're not legally in charge of these kids, but like legally we have to Once get again, these kids out again, of here. What Mike sees and hears is not our fault until it is our fault. Until like that is like. This, this could be, like, really bad for the brand and, like, these kids' futures, you know. And, and and that was that night. That was one of the craziest things I've ever experienced. And then you get back to this hotel with all your buds and you're like, that was the greatest night of our oh, lives. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And then I continued from there. I did School of Rock in New Jersey. And I was in a couple bands, Gridlock, True Will. Which um, one's the re- hardcore punk rock true will true will yeah i've seen videos of you drumming with them and yeah it's just insane yeah it was it was pretty insane this was my head hurts school. just thinking about yeah the music. Lots, of, lots of head banging lots of lots of not not screaming necessarily just kind of like doom rock uh like black early black sabbath kind of sounding stuff right. with, with mixes of like danzig and the misfits and stuff like that yeah but uh speaking of the misfits double kick actually actually our our uh most most famous show as a band was we opened up for the misfits at the starland ballroom which is in no Sayreville. freaking way yeah, yeah how have i not heard this story before? i'm not sure i'm not sure uh, so you open up you're playing this one of the bigger venues yeah. of the area yeah it was it was pretty much full there were people moshing oh my god during your show yeah. that's so badass it is, it is, and, is, it is, and is john in the middle of the crowd they're taking john, a video john was way, way the fuck in the back uh, <laughs> it is my favorite moment as a musician it yeah, is the coolest thing ever it also happened at the the trocadero in philly when mm-hmm. we played there which which closed which is just such a fun venue to play at uh, i mean look do you see the true movement that music can make in that moment yeah. because you are conveying this emotion through the tunes that you're putting out and it's pissing people off to yep. the point where they want to go or they want to go nuts at each other yeah um but i mean these are big venues like disco biscuits have played both the yeah. Troc and starland ballroom and God, I think Fish played at the Starland Ballroom in like they 90, did. in '93, '94, yeah, early. Uh, so that was cool. Um, and then, so when do you make this? You're obviously hardcore drum set type guy. When right. do you start moving into classical composition? Because I mean, I'm, I'm gonna pump your tires here. You've played Carnegie Hall more times than I've ever stood in the building. So <laughs> um, there's you move from this rock and roll punk kid yeah. who also was a sneakerhead at yeah. one point in his life yeah that was into A3. this classical composer yeah. who's i mean now that, studying music theory at columbia yeah i mean I, I i thank petty for that i guess and that's that's where my desire to learn more about music of all types came so you weren't playing timpani or anything before petty barely really barely I was, I was in, I mean, I've been in band and orchestra at my school since fourth grade, mm-hmm. but that's been essentially just like snare drum, just like ka 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 for like an hour, yeah, and the piece ends. It's just like, like five minutes, just like little little band pieces. Mm-hmm. But then in middle school, we had a really strong band program, so that's when I started to do more classical percussion stuff. What well, I guess, but not, I wouldn't even call it that then. It was like proto classical percussion. Now is this a private school? No, this is a public school. Oh, wow. I went to public that's, school my whole life. That's great. Yep. Yeah. Northern Burlington County Regional Middle School. You know, I I love to hear that because, well, for one, my where I'm I went to public school for two years or whatever, we actually had a strong band program, which is shocking because it's like one of the most impoverished areas in yeah. New Jersey. But I think it's what brought so many kids together, and I think that hearing about schools cutting music budgets and cutting band budgets every week almost, and it, it's heartbreaking because that is truly what 
can introduce kids to both music and this idea that there's more outlets to not have to go into bad things in life Absolutely. or just have outlets for enjoyment. Yep. So that's awesome to hear. But okay, so classical composition in middle school, then you really just in high school yeah, dive right really just it. went at it. And yeah, I've, I've been lucky that I've been in areas that have have been supported by good arts educations. Um, that's one of the one of the things that I'm really proud about. Fish and the Mockingbird Foundation does is they donate to a school in every city that they stop on tour for music equipment for the schools. Yeah, which that's is amazing. which is just an amazing amazing thing. And I think more more places should focus on doing things like that. But okay, anyways, um, yeah, I get to Petty and I start I started messing around on piano. I started messing around on guitar by myself. Um, I'm, I'm I still consider myself self taught on both those instruments. So you've never taken a guitar lesson? No. Never Holy taken a guitar shit. lesson. I've taken a couple bass lessons, but I've never taken a guitar lesson. I've never taken a piano lesson. So, like, after th- there, you get to this point in your life where you're like, music just makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, it's just happening. Like, for me, it's like anything with sports. I guess I can just figure it out. Like, yeah. that's how I am. But that's how you feel about music. Like, yeah. It's just the way I think. It's just the way I perceive things in the geez, world. Jeez, dude. Because, so I have a great example is like, I think I showed you a tune that you had never heard or something before. Or you had, I don't remember. And you just pick up a guitar one day and you started playing it for me. I'm like, like, how the hell did you do that? And so to be self-taught, it's pretty sick. Yeah. So now it's kind of always been like that, though. Right. Even when I was younger, when I was starting to play drums, we had this like little small toy keyboard that I think was one of my sisters. And I learned how to play. Take me out to the ball game was stuck in my head. Uh-huh. I learned how to play it. Like thunked my way through it on the piano. My parents were so freaked out. Yeah. How did you do that? Right, like it shouldn't make sense to you. Like did. you shouldn't just hear something and then be able to produce it on a piano with the same exact key and. Note. And they're like, no, but like, how'd you do that? And I said, I just heard it. Right, and it just made sense. I mean, granted, it's like one of the best things you could like ever do with your life if you have that talent, yeah. because you know it's rare. And well, thanks, of course. I mean, I'm here to pump your tires. That's <laughs> why I started this podcast. <laughs> um, but so. You now you're at Petty. I have to ask you about AP music or <laughs> yeah. a, because this is something that I never understood. Yeah. But I've had people try to explain it to me. Don't you have to be proficient in multiple instruments to graduate from that class or pass AP music it? theory? No. no. Oh no no no. no. Oh I'm okay. So oh, no, somebody no. Had explained it to me that way, and I was like, that's a bit ridiculous. Like now, now now let me let me step back for a second and think about this, but. In a sense, no, but the, the music, the AP music theory exam, like the college board exam is two parts. It's, or three parts. It's like multiple choice with vocab about music terms, essentially. Right. Like the second part is part writing. So you have to be able to essentially compose based on the rules of harmony and theory, given a, given a melody or mm-hmm. given a baseline, which is how every single composer ever learned how to do music theory. In the Western, in Western music, so like Bach, yeah, that's how it goes back to Bach's yeah. rules of counterpoint and, and 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 people after him and other theorists too. But that's just that's just what you learn and that's what's passed down and that's what's learned in that class. And then you learn how to break the rules and that's how you become a good composer. But anyways, we also had to in that class because it was with it was with Miss Green who is uh, very driven, very smart, obviously Harvard grad, Harvard and Yale grad. I mean, oh, and Yale, yes. Oh, yeah, she, she went like, to Yale for grad school. It's like going to Petty and Blair. You just can't do that. <laughs> and it's like being a Red Sox and a Yankees fan. She's like, I want you to guys to be able to play chord progressions on the piano as well. Just like one five six four one one four six five one. Just like the let it be, like the let it be pop chord progression that every pop song is based on. Uh-huh. 
I want you to be able to play that in three different keys by next week. Okay, great. I can do that. Now we're playing these hymns, like these four-part hymns. Okay, I can do that too. That's fine. But the part that was hardest for me in AP Music Theory was the singing. Uh-huh. I have never been a singer, ever. I don't like the sound of my voice. I don't think anybody does. But right. I really, really, really have a trouble with it. And if anyone that's listening to this feels the desire to help me. I, I, if there's I, any vocal coaches yeah, I, out I'm, there. I'm really, really, without taking singing lessons, I don't want to take singing lessons. I just want to become, be able to be more comfortable with my voice. And I think through my years of ear training and theory classes, I, I'm at a point where I feel fine. I can hum a melody. I can sight sing a melody. But it's not going to be good. It's not going to sound pleasant. Anyways, we had to do that too. And you have to do that on the AP Music Theory exam. Right. You have to go to a room with nobody else in it except a proctor who is not the not Mr. Not your not instructor, somebody. And they hand you a booklet party. and they time you from the second you rip open the packet, you press record on your recorder. You have like three minutes to open the packet, read it, get your starting pitch, and sing the thing. Wow. And there's two there's two examples. One's in treble clef, one's in bass clef, one's in major, one's in minor. So you're really working quick. You're yeah, you got you're under the gun. You got to figure it out, and so, so you're nervous already because you're singing, and it's obviously not your strongest suit at this time. And I'm being literally graded and on it. You're literally <laughs> being graded, and and they're also timing you on it because that. Well, I have a theory just about education in general. Anything that you time is going to end up not being quality. It's just not possible, yeah. no matter who you are, how professional you are at it. But I think I remember you telling me a story. Didn't they lose your tapes? Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, so I remember vividly that year, uh, the AP scores were coming out on July 5th, which is my birthday. Right. I was like, great, you know, happy birthday to me. I'm finding out about, <laughs> about all these test scores. Right. So, um, and, and this was, this was the only AP I was taking at the time. So I was like, I was really looking forward to this and I was like, great. Like, you know, I can be able to put on my applications for stuff or whatever that I took this class and, and you I got credits this score and, and whatever. And July 5th comes and, I open the notification and my the score I got on the exam is a hyphen. You're like, no, not possible. And it's one I'm through like, five, yep, buddy. It's zero. <laughs> if you put your name on it, you get a one. So like, <laughs> you know what? The, what the hell is this? And uh, after after a pretty long debacle with Petty, uh, we found out that um, <laughs> maybe because my singing was so bad, but uh, they. Petty or the college board, somewhere along the way, my files, my the audio files of me doing the sight singing were lost. So the hyphen was essentially like an incomplete score. Right. But it, it wasn't a complete failure. Like, they're no. not going to ruin you over so this. So I had to, like, petition and talk with the college board, and Petty finally found it and sent it to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't get my score until, like, that October, but... But at the end but, of the day, you know, you crushed it. I got a five. Yeah. <laughs> we get it. You're pretty good at the musics, uh, but... Uh, so... This is your, that's your junior year, right? Right. So now we're heading into senior year. Yep. Uh, so you find out October of your senior year, and this is when you have already spoken with everybody, and you're like, I'm going to create my own music class, and I'm going to be a self-taught student. Yeah. So your professor, your student. It was essentially an excuse to get a period to practice. So. To get a period during the day to practice but with you nobody got else in credit the for it. Yeah, I got, I got. So like, did you have to like write a song or something? I mean, uh, probably no, like it many. actually culminated in my in my my senior recital. Oh right, I okay. Through like the art signature experience at Patty, so right. I was doing that anyways. But I needed the time to practice. Yeah, I was learning such hard rep and so much of it for this for this recital that I was like, I you know, um, and, and it was also a time to meet with with Alan Michaels, my teacher, and, mm-hmm. and have a lesson. You know, he would listen to me play and and whatever. So. Um, that was that was a really important part of me, and I'm, I'm really grateful that Petty let me do that. And Petty also almost let me do something which 
I wasn't sure that I wanted to do and I eventually didn't do it. Um, and I think my life would be a lot different if I had done this because um, I probably wouldn't have been out of Columbia is I was thinking about doing the Juilliard pre-college program mm-hmm. during my senior year of high school, which would have meant that um, every Saturday I would miss class at Petty. We had Saturday we had classes. Saturday classes. For those of you who don't know, it's shitty. It's terrible. And go to Juilliard and play percussion all day with like you know, studying orchestra and lessons, all you know, the whole thing. It's like a program that they do. And it's a really, really good conservatory prep program if you want to go to a conservatory to go and try and play in an orchestra someday. And I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly considered doing it. And I got into the pre-college program and I talked to Petty about it. And Miss Rotary, God bless her heart, was going to let me take the bare minimum amount of classes, which is like three. Three, yeah. Which means that I would not have class on Wednesday or Saturday because a Saturday schedule is just a Wednesday schedule. Yeah, flip, flip, no break. And there's no time in between classes. Right. You're freaking running. Right. Yeah, it was ridiculous. So that would mean <laughs> that I would be in class four days a week. Right. Taking three classes. Taking three classes. But you're also, also going to Juilliard and doing that. And I decided I like class too much. That's yeah. the moment that I realized that I like going to history classes and I like going to language classes and learning about things that aren't music. And you didn't want to end up at a school like Juilliard right. or Berkeley. Did you apply to Berkeley? I didn't end? apply to Berkeley for college, but I did I did apply to Juilliard mm-hmm. and they rejected me. Did they really? Yep. That's, I didn't even get past pre-screening. That's not even intelligent by them. You know, I'll, I'll come out and say well, that right well, now. Is it because you couldn't dance? No, there's, 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 <laughs> other, there's other politics. I had a really bad lesson with a Juilliard teacher before I applied there. Oh, okay. And I think that plus... Yeah. And I also, I, also, I also procrastinated on my pre-screening video because I knew I didn't want to go to Juilliard and I was just doing it to do it, to right. apply. And it didn't matter because like three days later after I got rejected, I got into Columbia. Yeah, and you, the, Columbia is a school that I know you've wanted to go to since early in our friendship. Yeah. I mean, it's always been the spot. Yeah, it's, it's just made the most sense to me being the end goal. in the city and with its music scene. I mean, you know, last night I played a gig in Brooklyn with a band that just started that I'm, that I'm excited about. And Tuesday I'm going to go to orchestra rehearsal, play the Rite of Spring, which is like my favorite piece ever. And then go to rehearsals and hopefully... This cool band that I just started on campus called Wasabi Mayor is going to have some gigs Wasabi on campus. Wasabi Mayor. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just like... You guys eat a lot of sushi? <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's just a part of my life now. It's just always been that way. That's amazing. And it's, it's been... Even though I feel like I wear a lot of different hats as a musician, I don't think that things have changed. I don't think my view on music has changed that much since I was nine years old playing Guitar Hero. Well, that's probably the best part because, I mean... As soon as it becomes a job for you, right? That's when it stops being fun. And, right? it, and, it, and it has had flares of that mm-hmm. where it seems like that. And that's when I realized that I have to scale back. Right. Scale back on the projects that I'm doing. Because I, as, as I'm sure you know about me, I don't like to say no. I don't right. like to say no to people or to things. I can convince you of anything. Because yeah. I am excited always and want to be doing stuff and push myself sometimes too hard yeah. in that way. Which I think we all do sometimes, but... You really have to ask yourself when you start to like feel a certain way about something, like you start to have a change of thought about something is, well, you know, is this under my, is this in my control? Is this something that I can scale back on and try and remember the reasons why I was doing this in the first place, playing rock band as a 10 year old, playing Llama and McGrupp on rock rock band, or am I just doing this to do it, to, to have a sense of identity, to have a sense of something that I do? Which, which can be challenging sometimes. And, and, and Trey totally. talks about this all the time, too. 
And yeah. I feel like part of the reason why Fish had such a rough rough patch at the end of 1.0 and 2.0 is because it just became Trey's life. It yeah. just became the party. The party also, became the life, became the music, became the... And there were no lines. Right, and all of his friends were either working for Fish or in Fish. Yep. So it was like, when you can't separate work and pleasure, yeah. it's, it's kind of game changer. I'm kind of, I feel that. I, I'm literally interviewing you on my podcast that is both my work and my pleasure right, right. now. So like, I get it. I do, sure. It makes sense. But at the same time, I kind of love that. Yeah. And it really depends on the personality. It is the grind. It's the grind. And it is it's, the grind. It sucks at times, sure. But um, it also is so rewarding. I mean, also, like, such a cool thing is, like, you and I, I would consider you my best friend. and oh, Me too. Uh, we've been this close now for such a long time. The, you're telling stories right now that I've never heard. Like, and it's not that we didn't ever contemplate them or work or want to tell it's just there's so much going on at all times that yeah. we're just constantly keeping up with one another yeah so being able to do this for work and mixed pleasure is a beautiful thing however i need to tell a funny story about you right now because <laughs> um it's funny you brought up alan michaels and alan michaels is probably one of the smartest musical men i've ever met right is that right i mean i don't really oh, absolutely i don't really know too much no, about musicians but a fun fact about this guy is he, he works at the high school that we went to obviously but sometimes he gets called to New York to play shows on Broadway. Yeah. Is that a correct statement? Uh, absolutely. Not uh, not currently, but he has subbed on um, some Broadway shows like, oh, I don't know, West Side Story, Mary Poppins. Mamma Mia is one Mama of them, Mia. right? Okay, yeah. so this is where the story's going. So I before I really knew Mike, and like we were close, we weren't like best friends oh, yet. Oh, oh I, need, I need to correct something real quick. Okay, the reason why I got hooked up with the Mamma Mia percussionists is I did a program at NYU that was on Broadway percussion. I also play musicals, and I, I, I'm considering trying to make it on Broadway as a, as a drummer or percussionist. Mm. I did this program. Part of the thing right. of this program is you get to go to a pit. Right. So I had just seen Mamma Mia from the pit with, like, sitting in the percussion booth studio, uh, which was which was awesome. So cool. Such a cool experience. But the, the You're prefacing this my story that's right That's the context now. that you need. It's not yeah. – Michaels didn't get me that. Oh, that, Michaels didn't get you that. Okay. the Mamma Mia thing. But okay. I have sat in a pit with Michaels for before for a different musical that he was playing. That okay. one's called Falsettos. So like, you post this picture of you at Mamma Mia on right. okay. Instagram or something. Yep. And so we're not that close yet. We follow each other. So I'm just assuming, like, holy shit. Like, I know this kid's good, but, like, Broadway good. Like, that's something else. <laughs> so it's just, like, a random Wednesday night. I see Mike's in the pit of Mamma Mia right. on Broadway. Right. And so we're fast forward two years but later. But I wasn't. But well, you you'll, get there, you'll get there. But, I, you know, I was just there. Oh, yeah, you were just there. Right. Now, now I understand the story. Yeah, I was not playing to but, make this crystal clear. So we two, two years come down we're seeing fish in our traditional four shows new year's run whatever you want to call it yeah. and i'm it's night one right the, oh no 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 this, no, 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 this is baker's do, this is this baker's dozen show. middle of the summer in new york we're staying at the hilton midtown i remember it like yesterday yep. and pre-show i i'm like you know whatever you want to call me, I get a little drunk and um, <laughs> Mike's a little drunk. So we're feeling it. We're, we're good. We go to this spot. It's called Burger Joint. It's in New York. It's a hole in the wall, quite literally, yep. behind a red curtain. A hole in the wall a, a hole in the wall of one of the nicest hotels in Manhattan. Oh, right. So like, it's in the Ritz-Carlton. <laughs> Le Parc Meridian. Oh, no. The, yeah, the Parc Meridian. Um, so it's like this nice-ass hotel. <laughs> Shitty. Just brick-covered, like, burger joint. Nobody really knows. Like, you, if you know about it, 
If you know, you know. You know. It's the definition right. of if you and know, you it's know. It's funny because when I first met Mike, I was like, you know, and there was like Burger Spot. He's like, we got to go to this Burger Spot. I'm like, oh, I know this one. It's like behind like a red curtain. It's like at a really nice hotel. He's like, dude, that's where we're going. I was like, okay, great. So we're we're headed over to this burger joint. I get two more beers because I'm a freaking degenerate this night. I don't know what's and going you're, through you're, my mind. You're sitting down in the booth and, and I'm ordering. Right. So I get us a booth. And this is one of those spots where you like sit with random strangers yeah. because they're you, you just have seat. you have to fight for a seat so i'm sitting with these there's like was it two gay guys two, yeah, or two gay guys yeah okay place. so two gay guys sit down with me i'm like hey guys what's up and they're like nothing much like just got back from broadway and i'm like oh what do you do on broadway <laughs> apparently they're like set producers or something yeah. on broadway and i'm like no way no way i call mike over i'm like hey buddy you gotta come tell him you gotta come tell him and they're like what is he gonna tell us and i'm like Mike, you play drums for Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> like, he set me up. And I'm like, you got to be my buddy Mike. He plays drums on he Mamma Mia. He plays percussion Mamma Mia. And I come over and I'm like, huh? <laughs> and and I had to go along with it. And Mike goes along with it. He's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I did it a couple times. It's, it's just a stand-in. It's, it's very rare. Yeah, just a sub. <laughs> just, just a sub. You get called in when the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth guys can't do it. Then that's me on the seventh the seventh name on the list. And so I'm telling these guys about how Mike's playing drums for Mamma Mia on Broadway. And, I mean, I'm buckled. Like, yeah. I am definitely in no way, shape, or form should be, like, operating anything at this time. Uh, we make our way over to Fish. Story ends there. You know, the show happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the rest yeah. of the night is what it is. We, we end tell, up... Can't tell the rest of the story. We end up back at the hotel, and that's all that matters. Yep. But um, safe and sound, and I got some halal, and it was really good. Mike did get halal. Yeah, that's you know that's funny. We have, like I said, me and Mike. Whenever we or Mike and I, whenever we get together, we do the same thing. So whenever we're in Princeton, we go to his house. We get Hoagie Haven, call it a night, watch Wayne's World. Whenever we're in New York, we go to a fish concert, pretty much, uh, and then get halal at the end of the night. It's watch the same. Watch, watch Wayne's World. World. It's the same. Watch Watch uh, Electric Apricot. It's the, the best. The best mockumentary of all time. It's the same loop, just over and over again. But um, dude, we haven't talked about Oysterhead at all. Oh, how do you feel about them getting back together? I love it. I personally love it. Yeah. I think that it would be awesome to see them this summer if I can make it out to one of the gigs that they're playing. You should go to the Denver show. I was thinking, was it at Dick's? No, it's not at Dick's. It's at some. It's at some. It's, it's like at a theater in downtown Denver. I. Think. I mean, growing up. We listened to Oysterhead. I mean, growing up is what I was like eight, I guess, when they put out the first album. Uh, I never listened to them. So, well, my dad obviously, of course, like a huge fish guy. You know, out the womb, I've been seeing these guys, and he loves them. He literally, I tell this story on another one, but like I think it was like five after hours after I was born or something, he was down in hampton for a fish show like three states away you know for hampton 97 hampton 97 which is like some of their greatest playing ever but um so i'm really interested to see what they sound like i think it'll be cool i hope that they just play the old album to be honest with you i don't i heard that there's a lot of new stuff i mean i don't particularly love the way trey is moving with his stuff musically yeah so hopefully this brings some evil dark stuff yeah some like crazy like 19 or like late 90s early 2000s tray like weirdness or or let i mean obviously primus is one of the major influences on oysterhead oh yeah like just the concept of the band is it it is what it is i mean it's kind of hard to explain you know it's it's a mosh up of incredibly interesting artists who are the best at what they do yeah and i think les claypool is a genius. I have, so, I have a great Stuart Copeland story for you. Oh, I need to hear this quick. then. Yeah, so, just shoot for it. Um, I'm in the I'm in the orchestra at Columbia, which is awesome, um, and it's run by Jeffrey Malarski, who is a 
phenomenal mentor of mine, and he's also also a timpanist, and he's a conductor, which is great because we'll play a piece, and you know most conductors will be like, okay, violins here, you know you need to be listening to each other more, or, or woodwinds here. We play through a whole symphony, and he's like, Michael, uh, second movement, this one roll, I don't I don't think that's the right color, and I'm like, whoa. Like, oh, you've told me about like, it. That's <laughs> really? fucking cool. And, and just the way he offers constructive criticism is just, just phenomenally inspiring. Anyways, um, I went to rehearsal uh, one. I don't do this often, so people don't judge me. But I one night I had a fish, <laughs> one night I had a fish shirt on at rehearsal. Sounds like I was going to say something much worse. Yeah, but. I'm like, oh, he goes, he is tripping balls. No, 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 <laughs> he walks in there seeing the rainbow. I just, just had a fish shirt on, which, which you know, to some people implies is it, some things. Is it the fish shirt? Yeah, it's 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 the the the, the Fenway one that you gave me. Okay, yeah. And uh, it's the it's we should preface this. It's like a hammy. It, we pass it to the next fish fan oh, yeah. in our lives. Oh, yeah, yeah. So whenever you have like a child or something, you'll give that shirt to them. It's like it's like, it's like the glove. Anyway, yes. Uh, so I was wearing this, and and uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty far away from him, so I didn't I didn't get a chance to talk to him beforehand. And then at the break, like halfway through the three hour rehearsal, I just get an email from him uh, with no no subject, no body in the email. It's just a picture of him and Stuart Copeland. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, hello? So I like, you know, weave my way through the woodwinds and the strings. I'm like, get out of the way. So I like, move, get up to, and I get up to the stand and I'm like, uh, what? He's like, oh, you saw my email. I'm like, yeah, of course I saw your email. I was like, it's you and Stuart Copeland. I'm like, how did that happen? And and Jeff is a is a faculty member down at Juilliard and he's a, one of the conducting conducting faculty there and mm-hmm. he runs um, Axiom, which is their their modern music ensemble, which oh, is sick. awesome. I've seen a couple of their rehearsals and concerts. It's cool stuff. Anyways, they were doing an all Steve Reich concert uh, oh. program. Steve Reich is a is a minimalist composer from the '60s and '70s, mm-hmm. percussionist as well, and um, one of, one of my favorites as well. Obviously, I mean any percussionist just loves him. Um, so Axiom's playing this 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 full Steve Reich concert, and Stuart Copeland catches wind of this. That's how famous Juilliard is, as you know, as a right, place. Of course, I mean everyone knows all the way over is. in England, and he is doing a uh, a BBC documentary about like the the like the way he's been doing music recently, and like what his life has been like as music. And he's he is profoundly in, inspired by Stuart, uh, I'm sorry by Steve Reich in his own compositions because Stuart Copeland's also a composer on right. the side. He composed the music for video games as a kid that I, Spyro the Dragon. Oh, no way. Yeah, Stuart Copeland wrote the music for that game. Oh, that's sick. And you listen to it now and you're like, oh, this is wacky. This sounds like an Oysterhead album. Like Minus <laughs> right. Trey playing. You know? Yeah. So, um, so <laughs> Stuart Copeland catches wind of this concert and he's like, I want to do, I want to do part of my documentary is me going to New York City and going to this Juilliard concert because mm-hmm. I love Steve Reich and like that would be such a, such a, a big part of me musically. So he goes and he meets Jeff, who's conducting this concert, and they hit it off. And because Jeff's a drummer, obviously, I mean Jeff got both his his undergrad and his masters at Juilliard as a percussionist. So like he's the so he's just music all around. Yeah, and uh, Stuart Copeland was the nicest guy ever and super cool. And like they traded emails and numbers. And Jeff's telling me the story. He's like, I should probably send him an email. I was like, Yeah, I think <laughs> you should. And he and he asked me if I knew Oysterhead. I was like, Yeah, I, I love Oysterhead. I was like, Do you know Fish? Like, cause I, my shirt. He's like, Well, yeah, I I know of Trey Anastasio, and that's why I saw that and I thought of Oysterhead. I was like, Oh my god, that's awesome! And then I was like, Wait, here's the golden question. I was like, Do you know Trey? Like, have you ever worked with yeah. Trey? He's like, No, I haven't. I was like, oh. I heard Trey lives three blocks from here. I think we could get him out to a rehearsal. <laughs> but but Stuart Copeland is cool, 
and likes Juilliard and likes Steve Reich and uh, apparently was an awesome guy. So that's amazing. Just confirms that he's a he's a fucking legend. You know, that's that's the stuff that you love to hear because often, I mean, especially in modern 2020, when we think about all the bullshit artists that are out there just ruining the music scene and music's name, it's nice to just be refreshed in something like that. Definitely. That like, there's still great dudes out there and they're still composing. Now, we have pretty much covered your entire life to this yeah. point what's what's the future looking like for you musically i don't really give a shit about what you do personally because we already know what we're gonna do in yeah. 10 years and that's gonna be open up our think tank in new oh, york yeah. for artists oh yeah absolutely i i you know i i gotta say i've been at a, a little bit of a fork maybe a fork maybe a spoon in the road kind of thing uh where that was so deep i loved it <laughs> where I feel like I have done so much different stuff and I feel like I've spent so much time kind of being a jack of all trades that I'm not at the point where I can hone in on something or I feel like I'm missing the boat, so to speak, in like honing in on something. Mm -hmm. So I'm like frantically trying to catch up in like how to work Logic, how to work GarageBand, how to work Ableton, all the dolls, the digital audio workshops. I'm catching up in like my piano and my writing skills. And but the problem is you can never be satisfying everything at once, and as a result, I feel like my drum set playing has 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 fallen off a little bit. I mean, I sat down at this gig last night, and it was a good show. Energy was good, vibe was good, but I sat down and there was a little bit of a, a couple minutes, first tune or two, where I I felt out of it. Right, I did not feel like my hands were there. Did not feel like my body was there. Kind of what I was saying before we started this episode it was like first ten minutes of any podcast I do, I need like just. To, Honestly, I need to just redo it on yeah. it after the first ten minutes. It's the same thing. It's, yeah, it's the same thing in sports. It's the same thing in 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 the arts of any kind. And I'm I'm you know putting podcasting under that too. I mean it, it's you got to get into the zone. You got to be able to get to that that flow that that hose state. You know totally. What um, what are you bring up podcasting? I need to know your thoughts on like podcasting in general. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? This is this the first podcast you've ever been on? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I feel this is honored. My first time ever doing it, and and this has been great. Um, it's therapeutic. Yeah, for it, me, it, it's it, like it feels nice. I I was telling someone this yesterday. I actually had an interview yesterday, and this is where I said it was that it's like some people like to lay down in bed and watch Netflix yeah. to relax. Some people yeah. like to read a book. Some people like to go for a walk. For me. I enjoy learning about someone or talking to them or just doing it in whatever fashion this is. And I feel like so many of these conversations get so are from a really special place that if I didn't record it, I'd almost be remiss. Yeah. And I don't like that. So there's this beautiful thing that's been introduced to my life called podcasting. And now we're here. This is episode one. Right. Like I, I also like should have prefaced this before the hour and a half mark that like i i wouldn't have wanted my first episode of the show to be with anyone else because i think that anytime you enter into something you do it whether it's walking into a room or walking into a new stage of your life you do it with someone that you're comfortable with and this is such a big project for me that i needed almost to show you guys that one i'm comfortable enough with speaking by myself because traditionally i had a co-host and i never really got personal on podcasts and two i just needed to do it with someone i knew i would be able to come with and have a really great conversation with so oh, well i'm honored that i'm not i'm not for your harm no yeah i mean it's like i said i'm just here to appease you and it's all a facade <laughs> <laughs> um not actually uh but no and that's amazing so yeah my, my podcast experience has been 
uh, Yankees podcast and Fish podcast, essentially. Uh, because those helping are friendly podcast. Helping friendly podcast, Under the Scales, um, Talking Yanks, obviously, John Boy's great. John um, Boy's amazing. I like listening to the short porch just kind of to laugh at Hubs, honestly. Hubs is such a fucking idiot. Yeah. And yeah. I don't say that lightly. Yeah. Like, you, you guys are really screwed. Being a Red Sox fan, I have all of the best people hosting my pod section 10 whether you're a red Sox fan or not jared carabas and uh why can't i think steve peralt just amazing they work so well together they're not annoying as shit like hubs is <laughs> and they, i feel bad for yankees fans yeah. i mean barstool's based out of new york you'd think they'd be able to get some decent yankee speakers in there and yeah. they end up with fucking hubs yeah i i mean i i have mixed feelings about podcasting honestly because um as much as I do like it, and, and I, I love the idea that it gives people platforms to share their stories, which is mm-hmm. why I love your podcast so much, and which is why I agreed to be on the first episode of it. There's number one. But in addition to that, it also gives people who don't have a platform um, ne- necessarily in society to speak. Um, but one of, my, one of my gripes with podcasting is that platform turns into uh, white dudes, similar to us, right. sitting around talking about what they're what they like what they don't like mm-hmm. and like part of me is like well who the fuck would find that it's so self-fulfilling and and part of me is like I, you know i watch like a joe rogan podcast and they're just like smoking on the show like right. i'm like i don't want to listen to these dudes who are high just talk like i'd rather rather learn about listen to a piece of music i've never heard before i'd rather put on a fish show i've never heard before right. i'd rather check out a new artist or 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 read or, and, and, and it, this is all about consumption of media, right? This is all about consumption in general. And when I was, when I was actually, I was doing a, a, bit of, a bit of light preparation for this, just kind of trying to think about what people talk about and how they, how they speak. And I was watching this video about, uh, with an, it was an interview with David Foster Wallace mm-hmm. on um, consumerism. Oh, that's brilliant. And I, I, <laughs> it's funny you say that because I started watching it as a joke. Like YouTube, you know, the big, the big monster that is YouTube algorithms spat <laughs> right. this out to me and I was like, fuck it. I'm bored. I'll it watch knew this. that you were thinking about yeah. like what yeah, you're yeah. going to say on this yeah. podcast. It was, at, it was at like 11 PM the other night. I was like, sure, I'll watch this. It's like, a, it's like a, it's like a 17 minute long video. It's pretty long. And I clicked on it as a joke. And I watched the first minute or two of it as a joke because it's hysterical because he's just like, you know, kind of kind of academic looking like in this office. And he's like, uh, you know, so, and he, you know, he's just got this, this phony ass voice on. He's yeah. just like, uh, you know, just like people who are underrepresented, you know, just like think about things in different ways. <laughs> and just, we as a society and these people and just, uh, you know, just like puts these very breathy uhs and just like. I was like, "Oh fuck you!" Like, yeah, you that's are David so Foster Wallace. Yeah, and you, of course, you're the guy that wrote Infinite Jest, right? But then I started really listening to it, and one of the things that he talks about is, it's kind of it's kind of a Marxist take. So forgive me. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, I know, I know, but, you know, but I'm just I'm just putting that out. It there. It gets a negative connotation though. Just you're putting right. that out there. Yeah. Uh, Marxism, which is essentially based on on the on the consumer capital and 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 our our borderline fetishistic uh, idealization towards consumption specifically through our capitalist society um forces us to always be going on to the next thing mm-hmm. no matter what right always 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 going to the next thing and he brings up examples of this and one of them is this is in the early 2000s so he's talking about tv uh-huh. tv's like you know at its golden age and he's like people watch tv so they can stop thinking about what they want next so they can stop thinking 
people watch movies and listen to music. That's that's what consumption of media is. It stops us. It stops us from our inner thoughts, which I think is I think is I think is kind of sad and depressing. I don't think I agree with that all the time. Yeah. But certainly, I think part of the appeal of podcasting is it's people's voices in your head that aren't yours. Right. No, I totally agree with that. But also, I was actually talking about this with my mom. Shit, I always say that I'm always talking to someone. I am always talking to people. But this morning, I we were sitting at breakfast, and I said, you know, the thing about this show that I'm really stoked about is that millions and millions of people will listen to a guy like Joe Rogan every week and think, wow, I would love to do that. But one, I don't know how to do that. Mm. And two, what stories would I tell? But because I can give you that platform right now, I think that we could finally start to hear our own voices or like somebody who comes on my show who has never had a platform before somebody who has like 10 followers on Twitter and is a coach of a high school that like is in the middle of Missouri or something or not even just or or someone who has never had a chance to share stories that they're not comfortable saying right so about about race or class exactly so then you can come in have this conversation with me and then you can listen back on the episode and say listen like this Joe Rogan guy is no different than me. Yeah. He just does it more often. Yeah. But I can tell tell you these stories, and I don't need to, especially for me, it's like I think you can also often get caught in your thoughts and push in direction of like something like depression because of that, and if you're not voicing them. So if you can come onto this platform and voice these opinions that you have, and it helps you out, and you hear yourself back, and it gives you that certain amount of self-confidence, then hell yeah that's kind of the ultimate goal of anybody and everybody i think you'd be a good social worker herm I really uh, I, I, i've been told this far too many times and, and, in my and, life and man I, I think i've actually in the last hour and a half that's really crystallized with me that i think that should be your be your life goal and see now this is something that i also talk about quite frequently and i love it i love it to death and it's working with kids especially and my original major in college was um, sports psychology because I really love the mental side of all sports because I mean what's the one fun it's not a funny phrase but like it was an old baseball player was like baseball is like 10% physical 120% mental or something <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that. so but it was like yeah so it was like obviously the guy didn't really know his metric system too well no, but, no, no, but he perfect. yeah that's so, like when I say you know it's half this thing and half this thing and, and also half, half this, this thing, thing. Yeah. exactly so it's like I I love being able to be that person that somebody can one come here and talk about but it's like it, it is truly a therapeutic thing for me it's it's like I I almost and this is going to sound kind of fucked up, but like, I'm not using people, but like I am because I enjoy hearing other people and trying to help them more than I enjoy helping myself. If that makes any sense. It also probably sounds incredibly self-fulfilling, but it's kind of, you're doing it from the right place. Right. And I think that's such a big part of it. So like a good story is like the other day, someone comes up to me and he asks if he can be on the podcast and he's a pretty famous person. He has a huge platform and He's in the lacrosse community, obviously, which is where I've kind of made my mark recently. And he asks if he can be on the podcast. I said, of course, you can come on. I'll do your interview. However, I'm, it's not going to be my first priority. And I mean that with all respect. It's not because your story is, means less than someone else, but it's because anybody who listens to that podcast already knows your story yeah. or knows so much of your story yeah. because so much of it's already been put out. Yep. And it's not, I'm not saying that your story doesn't have a platform because you obviously have a pretty substantial following of your own, but, and it's a lot of people who really care about you and want to see you succeed. But I mean, there's only a handful of people who know all the stories that you've shared today. 
And I think that by putting that in the public, like now you can feel more open to telling the stories more often and people have an opportunity to connect with you because i mean i'm sure that there's someone who now will be interested in like rock and roll boot camp or is that what it's called rock, rock and roll, roll fantasy camp. rock and roll fantasy yeah. camp like it's still happening to this right day. it's still Absolutely. happening and you might have just inspired a 12 year old yeah. somewhere who's like shit like i love drumming but i didn't know what outlet i should go to well that's and, that's my hope and that's where the that's where the hours in the practice room the the thousands of hours in the practice room when i was younger uh led me to and and, and help me you know i mean at the end of the day will i become a social worker probably not i could never live with that dude no i understand that would be so hard for me my mom often she was in that for a little while like when she was first in college or something and she would tell me about like because now she tells me about like the horror stories like if i had a kid come to me who's being abused i would like just i would break down yeah i wouldn't be able to deal with that personally and yeah. i would also then adopt like a hundred kids because <laughs> you know i mean it's just as as fun as it is to be the personality that I am or whatever on social media and in the community, I also have a incredibly deep and emotional side of me. And I think it's just as important for that side to be explored. And so I can do that here, but it's, it's, yeah. So I know I really appreciate that. And this is a therapeutic thing for me. And obviously the vibe of the podcast slows down here towards the end, but I mean, there's so many more stories we could get into. There's so much more to do, and I'm sure you'll be on again sometime, and we'll get into that I then. But, um, dude, this has been amazing. Thank you Something so much for special. having me on, And man. one of my favorite things about this show, and um, this is episode one, but I've done six interviews or so up until today, and every single one I come out, I'm just like, dude, give me a hug. Like, <laughs> I just need a hug. So this is one of those moments where I just need a hug once we roll this thing out because that was amazing. So many people got to hear your story. If if there's anything you need to or want to plug, any bands or yourself or any of the above, go for it. This is your moment to shine. Cool. And um, yeah, so I'm going to give you the platform for the next minute and a half or so to just yeah. say whatever the hell you want while I fix this laptop. Sounds good. Well, um, my music Instagram is MDC underscore underscore music, uh, which I post info about my gigs and videos and things like that and what's going on in my life. Um, I'm currently in two bands. One is called Burke and Crow. Burke is B-U-K. Uh, yeah, B-U. R-K-E and Crow K-R-O-W-E uh, we have an Instagram page that's a folk band we just played our first gig last night at The Well in Brooklyn they rock yeah thanks man <laughs> and uh, also as I mentioned um, I'm in this I'm in this band with some of my friends at Columbia this is a more kind of casual thing uh, please invite us to play your house parties basement shows we're like your favorite grunge band that you never knew about uh, that's called Wasabi Mayer um, and then I'm also involved in the Columbia University Orchestra. You can come see us play this spring if you're around in the city. Um, other than that, my SoundCloud, um, I release some music on it sometimes. He's a rapper. I'm <laughs> not a rapper. I release pretty chill, ambient music on there. Um, and my name on SoundCloud is Fyodorovich. It's like the Russian name. You might need to spell that one uh, out for him. I got to spell it out myself. F-Y-O-R-O-D-O-V-I-C-H. And that is Stravinsky's middle name. And Stravinsky's one of my heroes. That's where that comes from. 
That's about it. Yeah, I mean, you're really? all over the place. You, you can't miss his music. He is truly one of my... He's inspirational for me. I mean, shit, I, I often think about having to work late into the night, but I always remind myself that it's guys like Mike who are just constantly getting after it, both in the classroom and in music. So that's amazing. This has been an absolute blast, and I want to thank you all for tuning into this interview but um thank you so much her of course what an absolutely just unreal interview uh i can't thank mike enough for hopping on the show i mean that was probably one of the best conversations i've ever had in my life i will never forget it the stories that he told i hope that you guys got a kick out of them because they were hilarious but i mean you if you didn't learn something i mean i was learning the entire time that he was talking he just speaks with so much conviction and passion and i honestly think he'd be great at this podcasting stuff however one of the major keys that i pulled out was right in the beginning of the conversation when we bring up neil pert and how he cherished life and that he passed away so soon. And one of the biggest parts of it was our conversation on how the media didn't know for two days after he died. And yesterday we lost Kobe Bryant very tragically in a helicopter crash. And obviously someone who played such an influential part of so many of our lives as so many people at some point in their life turned on a basketball game and saw this man just work his tail off and do something that so many people can't do and that's be the best at what you do in your profession and he left a legacy unlike any other so obviously my condolences and thoughts and everything are out to the Bryant family and I, I honestly I have no words and today we found out that there was another family of people on the helicopter so it's just heartbreaking but the thing that I really drew from it, and this this actually pissed me off, and I'm going to be straight up. I, I'm a media member. I'm someone who tries to break news occasionally. I'm obviously not like media media. I'm not the guy searching for breaking news, but if it comes across my table, occasionally I'll do it. But the fact that TMZ put out the news article that Kobe was dead before his own freaking family knew is not just ignorant but it is one of the most absolutely and excuse my french fucked up things you can do are you kidding me you're going to break the news that this man has died in a way that the entire world can consume on twitter instagram facebook it's just it's heartbreaking because one it shows the lack of heart dignity care that they show towards somebody's life but secondly, it just shows how far gone so many people in society have become to the point where they feel as though news news like a passing of someone who played an incredibly influential part of so many people's lives deserves to be public knowledge as soon as it happens. That that was one of the hardest things to fathom. And so we are just we literally twenty four hours earlier were having this conversation about how amazing it is that Neil Pert and his family and his friends got to celebrate his life for two days before it was even released to the general public. That's something that, that's both honorable, and that's just something that is absolutely amazing, because not so many people get that opportunity to share that last moment with their family once they're introduced to the public spotlight. And honestly, I just, 
I can't believe TMZ. I can't believe the people that broke this news. And I just feel for the family because anytime you find out something on social media before you find out through it personally, even if it's something small, and this is a really just huge life lesson. If you go and you get engaged, if you have a big announcement, if you have a career change, let the people know that you love first. Don't let them find out on Facebook. Don't let them find out on Twitter because you know what? They're going to take it in a much better way if you're able to communicate with them. Just shoot them a call. But on top of that, give the people in your lives a call today. Give them a text. Let them know that you love them, that you care about them because life is short, man. And with a guy like Kobe, who was literally at a lacrosse event where someone that I look up to every day, and Kyle Harrison got to be with him the day before, and it just it's insane like how fast someone can go. And I just think that life is too short not to share love and emotion and care with those in your family who really deserve it and feel it the most because, you know, it's it's crazy. We live on this earth for so many days, but none of them are the same. You can't repeat a day, and life just keeps moving forward. So before you get caught up in the struggles and the in and outs of life, give your family members a call. Tell them you love them before bed, and just don't forget that because at the end of the day, family is, they're, they're the ones who are there to love you at all times, and they're the ones who are there to take care of you. But Outside of that, this interview was phenomenal. Mike told some of just my favorite stories I've ever heard. I had heard brief inklings about all of those stories at some point or another, but never got into detail like that. And I want to give a huge just... The moral of the story that I took out of it is it really does not matter how old you are. You could be 11 years old and rocking with a group of 55-year-old men who really might, at the time, when they first see you, want nothing to do with you because they want to be there with their buds. But by the end of that experience, it sounded like he changed a lot of minds. He was the little sperm cell. That was the funniest freaking thing I've ever heard in my life. But he lived every moment of that those weekends at rock and roll fantasy camp and every moment to get his craft perfected so that he could be where he is today. So if you're a youngster listening to this show, one, you shouldn't be because there was some vulgar language, but two, if you're a parent, express to your kids, like this is, this is the point when you're 10, 11, 12, if you know that you love something, go for it, man. Don't be afraid to play with the big dogs. Don't be afraid. Don't hold yourself back. And the only way that I can really relate to this is that I always played up a year when I played hockey and lacrosse. I always was wanting, I was, well, first of all, it helps that I was always the biggest kid on the field. I've been like 6'2 since eighth grade, but always play up a year. Push yourself because if you're not pushing yourself, nobody's going to push you. Never play down because it's not not going to just not help you on the field or in whatever you're trying to do, but that's not going to help you in life, man. You're going to become lazy. You're not going to be able to perform at that level that you could potentially push yourself to. And it's the same way with like work. For me, it's like I could put out shitty videos every single day. I could put out a shitty podcast every single day. But if I take three days to put out a video or three days to put out a podcast, you guys are going to reap the benefits of that because it's going to be a much higher quality show. And I'm never going to feel lackluster or get burnt out doing it. So don't push anybody into doing something. But if they love it, make sure that you are ensuring that they are putting their best effort 
pushing themselves to the highest level to do so because if they're not, there's really no use in doing it. And that's just, that's what I took from there. I think that he has a million amazing stories and he'll definitely be a reoccurring guest on the show. But age doesn't matter. Get out there and do something. This has been an extremely long episode, so I'm going to keep this post-interview wrap-up pretty quick, but this is kind of going to be my space for talking about current events, talking about things that are on my mind. Maybe if I have another guest, like a co-host or someone who wants to discuss something with me, this is going to be the time for that after the interview. The interview is really going to be the main focal point of every one of these episodes. They're awesome. They're great. I already have so many amazing guests that are going to be coming on the show sometime soon, but before I let you go, I have to plug myself. Make sure that you're following me on Twitter, Instagram. Stay up to date with me. I want to hear from you guys. I want to get you on the show. And then also, make sure that you subscribe on Spotify. And We're also on Anchor right now. We were supposed to be on Apple by now. I had released this to them like three weeks ago, so I assumed it would have been done. But, you know, you can't always get things done in time. And I wanted to get this out to you because I just couldn't wait any longer. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as I did. And... I can't wait to come back to you. I will see you guys on next Tuesday. Oh, actually, that's probably a good thing to talk about right now. Before I sign off, this is going to be a bit different. We're going to go one episode a week for five weeks. Then we're going to go two episodes a week for five weeks, back to one for five, up to two for five. It's going to be a constant back and forth until one, I'm out of school, and two, we just have more interviews coming in. So, I hope that that's all right with you guys. If it's not, express that to me, and I will potentially push it to two interviews a week. We have enough right now for two interviews a week for the next three months. So if that's something that you guys would be interested in and you want more content, let me know. We'll get more episodes out to you. But I really, I really, truly, from the bottom of my heart, can't say thank you enough. Your listens and support and everything that you do for me means the absolute world. I hope that you enjoyed this, and uh, stay grooving, guys, because life is short, and I hope that uh, I hear from you guys because, you know, it's just been one of those weeks, one of those weeks where a lot of sad stuff happens. I think that if we stick together and stay strong, it'll be a little bit easier to get through. So I hope that this episode maybe did a little bit of that for you, and I can't wait to see you next time. So. I'm Herm, thanks for listening, and I will see you guys next Tuesday at the same spot.